Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Baker's Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. We have nothing to say. No. When I have nothing to say, my lips are sealed. Say something once, why say it again? We could talk about Spider-Man in more depth, since it's out in America now, and we're also it it created the show. We will be talking about that as we go for tonight's topic covers that very thing. Hello, lovely listeners. Hello, everyone. I think we may have just ruined the show. Unless you want to sit out. <laughs> I'm not going to. We, we are probably going to spoil Amazing Spider-Man 2 tonight, if we didn't spoil it enough last week. For tonight, we discussed the night Gwen Stacy died. It's very sad. Yes, it Sombre is. occasion. Mm. Not sombreros. <laughs> People didn't wear sombreros the night Gwen Stacy died. It was somber. Can you imagine if Green Golden wore a sombrero? <laughs> I am the Green Goblin! Zigga! <laughs> Spider-Man catches her with a lasso. What's Zigga? That was Zigga Zig Ah. That was the Spice Girls, wasn't it? Zigga oh. Zig Ah. Tell me what you want, Spider. What I really, really want. <laughs> Andre, Andre, Riva, Riva. Speedy Goblin. No, 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 no. Why have they never done that? Why have they never speeded, speedy, speeded? <laughs> why have they never spun off a speedy Gonzalez Goblin? I, I wonder, I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> In today's politically correct times, do you think speedy Gonzalez just doesn't cut the mustard anymore? You don't cut mustard, you spread it. That's, these, these are the facts. <laughs> As Stuart Lee wants said. Anyway, yeah, hello. We don't have it this week, do we? No. Nothing to say. Bye, then. <laughs> short show if we have absolutely we have ten pages worth of notes to say a whole ten pages a whole ten pages two issues yeah but what two issues man two pinnacles of 70s wonderfulness I always make words up in this bit don't yeah, I yeah. words that don't actually really exist when we're not scripting it yeah when I have to go off topic I don't know what to say weird that isn't it mm. off book very strange anyway should we do some emails should we go straight into a Christopher Franklin email why not I say... Because it's first on the list. It's the devil you say is the subject headed. The devil I say? The devil you say? The devil we say. Hey, hey! It's only hey. Chris, hello, Leyland. Hello, You've Chris. You've even been drinking. I've not, no. I am lax in my response this time. I did enjoy the first part of your Daredevil retrospective, but I have to admit I've never been a huge follower of the character, but I've always liked it. I have a friend who followed him through the later Miller run onto Amnesciente, and even into that ill-advised armoured phase, so while I didn't own the books, I usually read them and kept up with the character. The second story you spoke of does indeed sound like a forgotten gem. People can throw off on him all they want, and some of it is perhaps deserved, but Stan the Man knew how to write a good, powerful yarn, and could even be a little bit subtle at times. He could. He could be a little bit subtle when he wanted to be, Stan, couldn't he? You don't even remember that comic, do you? I do. The one with... Um, the blind guy. Yeah. Uh, what was his name? Albie Powell. No, Albie Powell was the Silver Surfer. 
right. mixing up the silver surfer with my dirt avalanche. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, him. Yeah, it was good as shit. Like very enjoyable story. I thoroughly enjoyed your examination of the D.D. Hulk story. Old Jade Jaws did seem more like his TV counterpart. And I dug all the television references you snuck in there. Very cagey. Especially the Street Hawk reference. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm glad somebody picked up on that. I do admit I liked that show, but what did I know? I was like nine or something. Rex Smith attempted to have a singing career at one time. I believe he hosted a music variety dance show called Solid Gold in his pre-Street Hawk Daredevil days. Looking forward to part two, Chris Franklin. Uh, other than Street Hawk and The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, I would have to confess I know little of the career of Rex Jesse Mock Smith. Okay. I did enjoy Street Hawk back when I was a kid, though. I enjoyed Street Hawk. Because, like, it was a wolf put on a motorbike. Mm -hmm. What's not to love about that? Because that was totally a superhero show, wasn't it? He had a secret (laughs) identity. Okay. He wore a mask, albeit a visor. He had a name, Jesse Mock. That's a comic (laughs) book name, if ever there was one. Secret Lure. Right. He had an Alfred. Wasn't it a warehouse, though? It was a converted warehouse, yeah, and inside it was like all computers and stuff, but from outside it just looked like a deserted warehouse. Yeah. And then, he came out the entranceway and the street art theme kicked in by Tangerine Dream. Who also did, I found out this this other day, he also did the GTA 5 soundtrack. Who, Tangerine Dream? Yeah. Ah, very good. Well, he was a cool... They also did the soundtrack to Legend didn't they? Ridley Scott's Legend? Or was the soundtrack thrown out for the Jerry Goldsmith one? I always get those two mixed up. Okay. Either Jerry Goldsmith did a soundtrack for Legend and Ridley Scott said, No, I do not want this. Right. I am an auteur. <laughs> and he did a Tangerine Dream one or the other way around. I forget which. It, it was in Legend. It could have been the other way around. No, no, I'm not. Tim Curry plays the devil. Okay. Which is always awesome. Is it a musical? It is not a musical <laughs> because Tom Cruise is in it. And I don't believe Tom Cruise can sing. All four foot of him. <laughs> not in his platform <laughs> boots, dude. They give him an extra foot. <laughs> at very least. Our next email... Oh, yes. Thank you, Chris. Before we move on, we need to thank Chris now. Thank you to Luke Giaconetta, who has emailed next. And the subject heading, I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night. That's why I wear bright red. It's not bright red, though, is it, Luke? Really? A little little bit darker than... Well, all right. Maybe it's a little bit bright red. Maybe it's a lot bright. Maybe it's very bright. Maybe it's rainbow bright. Or even shiner. Shiny happy bright. Yes. Shiny bright red. No, it's leather in the film. It's not shiny. It's a little bit shiny, shiny. yeah. All right, maybe you're right. What do I know? (laughs) They could have turned the contrast up on that movie. It would have helped a great deal, I feel. They could have turned a few lights on set. I felt like I was Matt Murdock watching it. (laughs) What's going on here? Our next email is... We've already said all that. It's Luke Giaconetti. What are you just saying when I'm not going to script? I'm crap. (laughs) (laughs) Well... (laughs) Mr. Leyland and Mr. Leyland attorneys at law. I'll be Mr. Leyland. Okay. Well, well, you I, I want it to be Mr. Leyland. I think we should toss a coin over that one. I think we, and we will. We will debate it later. A mass debate is forthcoming. My, but I have had Daredevil on the brain lately. I think you can get pills for that. Between <laughs> the hype surrounding the Mark Wade series, the anniversary Dave's Daredevil podcast, and now this series, I'm doing my Kevin Smith again, Anna. Be gesticulated out. I don't remember there being as much excitement over Iron Man's big anniversary last year, although I guess the billions of dollars in movie money makes up for that. To repeat myself from an earlier email, Daredevil Yellow, I am not much of a Daredevil fan, but can appreciate the popularity of the character and why he has been one of Marvel's success stories. To repeat myself from an early email to the fantastic cast, read the inhumans. Lou, did you just copy and paste this? <laughs> Because I don't mind that. You know, recycling. Yeah. It's good for the planet. 
One of my strengths and weaknesses as a comic book fan is I am eclectic and tend to find my interest pulled in many directions. So, with these two factors combined, I have been eagerly learning about Daredevil these past few months, and actually bought the Frank Miller Visionaries Volume 1 collection at one of my used bookstores. I wish I had as many cool used bookstores as Luke seems to have. (laughs) I was a crap. There's an Oxfam in uh, Preston that I was in the other day that has graphic novels and comics, and the prices are ridiculous. They wanted something like 40 quid for Batgirl Year One in a second-hand charity shop. You do want to sell this stuff, <laughs> right? You do actually want to raise some money yeah. for your charity of choice. You don't want me picking up and going, how much in the middle of Oxfam? <laughs> Because, you know, I don't know who feels worse about that. Me, for doing that in the middle of a charity <laughs> shop. Or them for actually having that ridiculous price on it. Anyway, I've got Batgirl Year One, so I didn't really care about that. But they had the hardcover <laughs> Frank Miller, The Complete Spider-Man collection. Yeah. And I was, you know, had it been a fiver, I'd have gone, I'll have this. Mm. But 25 quid? I think not. Not second down, not in the condition it was in. Anyway, Luke's email continues. So I wanted to thank you guys. You're very welcome. As I thanked Jay David for helping me fill in a blind spot. Oh, oh. you see what he did there. <laughs> Pun intended, thank you very much. In my Marvel knowledge and helping give me an in to Daredevil's corner of the universe. Thanks and very much looking forward to Flash Rebirth. Remember, if the show doesn't come out the way you like it, just go back in time and change it. <laughs> Luke, I've only ever done that once. <laughs> Gone back and changed the show because I didn't like it. Right. I completely rescored an episode because I didn't think the music suited what we were talking about. Okay. That's the only time I've ever done that. I remember when we went back and re-recorded an episode. We have re-recorded an episode because we thought it sucked. Our second Our ever. second ever episode, yeah. And do you know I wish we still had it because I bet if we listened back to it now we wouldn't think it was that bad. No, I think we would. No, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> anyway, Luke's got a PS. You ever notice that everyone has an opinion on Chris Evans playing both Human Torch and Captain America, but no one minds John Favreau playing Foggy Nelson and Happy Hogan? Um, I don't have an opinion on Chris Evans playing both the Human Torch and Captain America. No. He's much better as Captain America, but he was gross as the Human Torch. The two different universes. Yeah, and I don't mind John Favreau playing Foggy and Happy Hogan. Didn't bother me. Could it bother you? No. I, I didn't even know he was in Daredevil. I forgot Daredevil. I forgot the Daredevil movie ever happened. I watched Daredevil for our Daredevil shows. Such is my commitment <laughs> to Sparkle Mo- uh, to Hey Kids Come. I'm not that committed to watch Daredevil. You're not that committed. There are six comics though that I read for this show. Which, lovely listener, go above and beyond the Call of Duty. I have to say, very much suffering for my art. Oh, we, we could hear you crying. <laughs> As I read through Sin's past. So that we could discuss it in relation to the 70s classic we are talking about tonight. But you didn't read them. I've already read it. I remember what happens in them. Yeah, I remembered what happens in them, unfortunately. W. Blaine Dowler has emailed in. Batman Beyond on TV is his subject heading. Hi, guys. Hello, Blaine. The latest Daredevil episode, which I couldn't wait for, I'm still behind, but I'll always skip ahead for Daredevil, included some talk of Batman Beyond Return of the Joker and whether or not it was on TV. It was, but wasn't broadcast until well after it had been released on DVD. Thus, you are probably both right. Michael could very well remember watching it on television when he watched it for the first time, while Andrew could very well remember it as the direct-to-DVD it originally was. I'm sure you'll get more emails as I work through the backlog. Laters, Blaine. Well, um, yeah, okay. No. I, I don't recall it ever being on TV, but... No, it was. I watched it on TV, but we were in Florida when we bought it on DVD. Yes, we and bought we watched it. it in the villa when we got back. Yes, we did. We watched it. Yeah. Uh, by the pool! Yes. We did watch it. Oh, we are. We have a classic. 
We watch DVDs by the pool, darling. <laughs> Bring me something, Jeeves. We should have fixed up one of the little floaty things and put the TV on it. <laughs> Sat in the pool, <laughs> yeah. watching Batman Beyond Return. Would that not have been a little ended. bit dangerous? <laughs> <laughs> not a day goes by, we don't do anything dangerous. <laughs> not a day goes by, we don't do something boneheaded. <laughs> yeah. That would have it's, been a- it's a remarkable we're still here. <laughs> That would have been a worthwhile brush to close to death. <laughs> I thought, did your son almost die, Mr. Leyland? He was watching Batman Beyond Return of the Joker in the pool, Governor. Oh, well, as long as he was doing something, what? And you let him? What kind of irresponsible parent are you? One who was also in the pool. <laughs> Fortuitously, I managed to save your life by scooping you out. But not before I rescued the DVD. <laughs> TV first. <laughs> no, the DVD came first. Oh. I didn't care about the TV. It was in the villa. I don't care about it. It's not mine. One of those big things as well, isn't it? Yeah, flat screens yeah. there. You know. Oh, okay. Our next email is Michael Bailey. Mikey Mike B. Writing this on his way to work. Has returned. <laughs> catching up part one. Well, see, the problem with that, Mike, <laughs> is I was expecting the catching up part two, which never happened. Maybe he's still catching up. It's entirely possible. Or he could be like Buckaroo Banzai or Doc Savage. He okay. promised a sequel. That but he didn't make didn't his money off this email to justify that. You're right, he didn't make any money. <laughs> And therein was his problem! You know, if he'd marketed this, Michael Bailey and the Temple of Doom coming soon... Sold the film rights to this one email. <laughs> but kept the sequel rights for himself? Yeah. He could be minted now, couldn't he? Could be loaded, he could be in a pool, in a villa, watching Return of the Joker... On a safety, on a safety little, floaty little floaty thing. thing. He could have afforded that. <laughs> he could have afforded safety. <laughs> Whereas we, we disregard health and safety with reckless abandon. <laughs> we're the reason we have health and safety. <laughs> we're, the, yeah, we're the reason the 1974 <laughs> Health and Safety Act actually was enacted. Yeah. <laughs> we're those people who stand on top of a ladder on one foot, <laughs> reaching up higher while another guy holds the ladder to make sure, like, holding the ladder's going to stop me falling. Yeah. I could land on you, I suppose. Yeah. Break my fall. <laughs> anyway, should we talk about my email? <laughs> hello there, Leylands, or hello there, Leylands. If I wanted to butcher an accent, I didn't. But that was brilliant. That one. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Do you think that was good? Mm. Was very Get Carter. Oh no, Get Carter was Newcastle, wasn't it? What yeah. are we talking about? Three Eastenders. Eastenders. Eastenders, governor. Oh, someone's dying, bloody hell. <laughs> Your Cockney accent is appallingly bad. <laughs> Where's mine? Indistinguishable from the real thing. It is just like all of your other actions. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're finally coming around to this truth. I am currently three weeks behind on your show. Our next email... <laughs> I'm only kidding, Mike. Things have been rather... Well, I wanted to type odd, but things are just not all that good at the moment. To distract myself from what has been going on, I decided to go through all 18 episodes of Shag and Rob's Who's Who podcast. Now that we've plugged Shag and Rob's Who's Who podcast, I am expecting money, Mr. <coughs> Matthews. Now I am actually up with y'all, catching up with y'all, that's what I've put that, I didn't, mm, didn't want to be an up with us all. And this email written in stages is my reactions to things that were said. Volume 3, episode 12. Which one was that? <laughs> Uh, I don't do numbers. Did you promise me, Mr. <laughs> Bailey? Maths would not be involved. <laughs> Dave Walker mentions the story from Secret Origins Annual Number 2, which retold the origins for Barry Allen and Wally West. 
I seem to have been the minority as I absolutely love the idea of Barry turned into the lightning bolt that gave him his powers after he sacrificed his life to save the multiverse. Maybe it was where the story was told, but I loved it. I can see where other people might not like it, but that doesn't change my opinion. Well, you stand by your guns, Mike. It is annoying that people constantly say that Peter didn't sell his soul, but rather Murray Jane that was the scapegoat. Then again, I am tired of people complaining about that story all these years later. Then again, my patience for such things is an all-time low. Yeah, you're annoying this guy, Dad, with your, with your <laughs> disliking of the story. I am, aren't I? Sorry, Mike. <laughs> uh, I loved the random nature of the books you chose, whilst I prefer... Oh, it was that one! It was Starlord! Oh, that one! Yeah, Starlord and um, Lone Wolf, 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 Wolf and Cop. Yeah, it was good, that one. It was. I enjoyed that one. I enjoyed reading the comics. I'm not saying we were good. No, we were always good. Oh, we? Yes. Yeah, but by what yardstick <laughs> are you measuring this? you just got to keep the bar low. <laughs> Keep the bar low. What, on the ground? <laughs> a little bit under the ground. <laughs> well, you've dug a little trench. <laughs> so it's in the ground. <laughs> so people don't even have to step over that bar. They can just roll over it and no one would even know it was well, there. No one's ever disappointed. I, I do like that we, we, we aspire to be the opposite. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. Anyway, yes. Um, whilst I prefer the theme weeks, months, continues Michael, because they give show a structure and something to look forward to, Y'all prove that you haven't lost your touch with the original premise of the show. Star-Lord sounded like fun, though. I have yet to get my Switch flip when it comes to science fiction comics. I like the genre well enough, but the comic book take on this has not quite clicked with me yet. Lone Wolf and Cub also sounded interesting, though that is not high on my list of books to check out. I will say that I have more of an inclination to read it now that you have spoken so highly of it, but frankly, there are so many other comics I want to get to that it may be never before I read Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf and Cub is excellent. Who needs a job when you can read comics all day? Yeah, the sad thing is you need a job to buy the comics. That's the Maybe. sad thing. Maybe. If you get all the comics whilst working and then stop working, you can read them all. Plan ahead. How do you play your bills? Play your bills. Play your bills. It's like paying them, only instead of paying them, you go to the companies <laughs> that you should be paying and you get your little flute out <laughs> and you say, I will play for this bill. And you sit there going... Yeah. Doing a little jig with it. Doing a little jig, yeah. Doing a little... You have a little flat cap in front of you with a pot coins for them to throw at you. And you go... So they pay you your So they pay you... And then you give them that money back and say, those my bill. I think this is a whole new bathroom system that could totally work. So they're paying themselves. Yeah, they're making enough profits. Why why are you playing your little pump pipes then? Because you're earning that money that you then pay them with it. It's it's (laughs) our entire society is built upon that premise. Okay. (laughs) In my head. At one point, continues Michael, an issue of What The? They did a funny take on the Lone Wolf and Cub called Lone Wolfie and Chris, where Wolverine and Chris Claremont take the place of Lone Wolf and Son. And this is the great gag where they cut up the word balloon and every Wolverine cliche spills out. (laughs) And he sent us a link, which is quite funny. I like that. Volume 3, episode 13, Daredevil. There never was a better example of a character I like, but really don't feel the need to own an entire run of... I've got lots of characters like that. Yeah. I like them well enough, but I don't feel the need to buy every single comic they've ever been in. Daredevil to me is like one of your friends that you don't see all that very often, but like to check in with from time to time. He's got a great costume, and when done right and not too silly or too millery, it's a fun time. To be fair, some of my favourite issues are written by Miller, and I even devoted two episodes of Views from the Long Box to Born Again. Plug! Plug away, Michael. He did that with Thomas G.J. It was fun. I enjoyed that. Having said that, there is something utterly charming about the 60s stuff. When I was 16, my future brother-in-law sold me a couple of Silver Age issues, and they were the first Silver Age books I ever saw in their natural habitat. (laughs) 
The whole Mike Murdoch thing was silly, but I loved it, and the two issues I read were very entertaining. How entertaining? Well, not enough to actually remember what the plot was about beyond Mike and crew being on a train, but I liked it back in 1992. Yeah, I always prefer it when he does these stories when he say, the year was <laughs> when Michael... <laughs> you always prefer it when he, he actually... When he, when he has a title. He does a yeah. wonder years for his, his life. <laughs> yeah. The first story you discussed sounded amazing. I will have to check it out at some point. I may have an explanation for the bowling alley set in the Bullseye story. Well, I may have more than one explanation. Perhaps the creative team was calling back to the Batman stories of the 40s and 50s, where Batman and Robin fought their villains against a backdrop of giant prop sets. Or maybe the studio had a setup for bowling for dollars. I don't know if you had something like this in the UK, but basically it was a game show where people bowled for prizes. No, we've had some pretty terrible game shows on television, Mike, but I don't recall that one. It was a mostly regional affair, and my main memory of it was when I was a kid in the 80s, and they would put theme weeks where they would show something for that week, like the live-action Spider-Man show, and then between breaks, play the game. Well, that's a cunning way of getting to watch, isn't it? So, it's possible Daredevil and Bullseye stumbled upon such a set in the fight. That is possible, except... It appeared from nowhere yeah. and then disappeared. And it wasn't like set up anywhere. It wasn't like you, you didn't see it in the background or anything. It just appeared. I thought it was a bit dopey, but what do I know? Agreed that Miller was influential. Agreed that creators that followed could not let this go to save their life. Agreed that Joey Q needed to watch what he said a little more back in the day. He's, he's got a bit better at that, I think. The Hulk story you covered was one of the first DD stories I ever read as it was reprinted in the Marked for Death trade that a friend of my sister Jane lent me in 10th grade. I know you probably don't care how I got my hands on it, but I like adding those details and talking about people you probably don't know. I know you're that friend of your sister Jane, Mike. I know her very well. It is one of my favourite stories in the book, and I thought it was a great take on the Hulk. That Marked for Death trade seems to have been very popular. I had one of them. I had that mark for Death Trade as well, but I got rid of it when I got my Daredevil Visionaries, which I got rid of when I got my Daredevil <laughs> Omnibus. And before you can say Street Talk, well played. Oh, thank you. I see Michael gets me little, yeah, yeah. me little slides in. How many... This is a quest, trivia question for the listeners. How many Hulk TV show episode titles did I slide into that synopsis? <laughs> Go back and listen again. I think you'll find at least three. Love the scoring of the Hulk issue. Thank you very much. Spent a long time on that. Thoroughly enjoyed doing it as well. Like you, I wonder if the writers and director of the 2008 Hulk film took a dig at this story with the dialogue about Bruce and the subway. That's it for now. I am at work. <laughs> <laughs> I'd actually need to do some if I want to keep my job. More soon, hopefully. Cheers, Mikey Mike B. Well, thank you very much, Michael. That was very entertaining. And we uh, we enjoyed it a great deal, did we not? Uh, right, we've got two very, very short emails. David Gutierrez emailed in uh, to talk about Captain America 2, Winter Soldier, where he says, how strange is it the country in the film's title is the last one able to see the movie? Yeah, that's, that's quite weird, that. We received some gentle ribbing. Yeah. that England got Captain America before America did. But my retort to that was, every country in the world got it before America <laughs> did. Uh, David continues, my favourite bits, Falcon Wilson, what a great character. At the time, the wings looked cheesy, but they were used spurring. Oh, no. Oh, Falcon was brill. Oh, he was absolutely fantastic. What very little bits in it, he's the yeah, Falcon. Yeah, he probably stretched the budget a bit, didn't he? Oh, I, I liked him as a character before he was the Falcon. I thought he was absolutely fantastic. On your left. Fury's epitaph, the path of the righteous man. That was good. Yeah, well, yeah. That was funny. Doctor Strange, only you and I in the cinema went, Doctor Strange! <laughs> 
the badassery of the Winter Soldier. And I kind of disagree with that. I don't think he was that badass. He was very brooding and Jared leto He He... he You've said that before that he looks a lot and like Jared it's Leto. It's still funny and accurate. <laughs> it's it's not inaccurate. That's true. Easily, Cap Two is the best one yet. I don't disagree. Obviously, my opinion may change when I watch it a few times on DVD, like other films that we've mentioned <laughs> in the past. I don't think so because, as far as I'm concerned, every time I've watched Captain America: The First Avenger, it's gone up. In yeah. my opinion, I now think that's a solid eight and a half out of ten. Maybe even a nine if you catch me in the right mood. <laughs> if you catch me in a, a firm Cap mood. Finally. Tom Panarese has emailed in. Hello, Tom. He's magnificent. We like Tom. So, one of my students who is a senior and won some big award just went and spent a week in Washington, D.C. She walked into my classroom a few minutes ago and showed me a picture of her with Tom Selleck. I'm sure you're as jealous as I am. I am exceptionally jealous of that. Couldn't Couldn't have got me an autograph. Can't believe she met Thomas Magnum. Or he... Isn't he a bit? Isn't he a bit tubby now? No, he looks. I think he looks pretty damn good. He's in Blue Bloods. My only thing with it. He's in that police TV show, isn't he? Yeah, Blue Bloods. He's the police commissioner, isn't he? My only suspicious thing about Tom Selleck is her. He's very dark for a man in his late sixties. Considering it was light sandy brown when he was in Magnum, I'm suspecting a little (laughs) bit of the Grecian two thousand. Maybe going on there with Mr. Selleck. But I, I think he still looks pretty damn good for his age. I hope I look that good when I'm 68 or whatever he is now. Anyway, we'll call it a day though because we're running to the... Yeah, we're running fast on the half hour mark and we try not to do more than half an hour of emails because we don't want us getting bored. Mm. No, we don't want you getting bored. <laughs> of your own emails. Of, your, of us talking about you. But yeah, whatever. Should we play a trailer? We should. And we'll play a trailer and we'll be right back with the night Gwen Stacy died. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.com? Dot blogspot.com. Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin. For the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. And so, the 70s marches on with one of the landmark stories of the era. Originally, we said that we were probably going to stay away from superheroes for this run of episodes simply because the Bronze Age was a time of great experimentation and diversity. But, ultimately, no discussion of the 70s can be had without at least mentioning the touchstone that is the night Gwen Stacy died. That, and we'd already broken that rule anyway. Yeah, that as well. Anyway, I also felt that by skipping this, we were in some way belittling the superhero comic, which arguably came of age in the 70s. Now, there are things I think the superhero comic should stray away from. 
by its very nature. The superhero strip is black and white. There are good guys, and there are bad guys, and inevitably the good guys end up punching the bad guys, which is cathartic and satisfying, but ultimately a simplistic worldview. But the 70s were the era that superhero comics at least tried to acknowledge that the world had shades of grey, that the good guys didn't always win, the bad guys weren't always dressed in brightly coloured costumes, and not every problem was solved with a right cross to the jaw. Captain America questioned his place in the world. Green Arrow developed a social conscience and passed it over to Green Lantern. And Spider-Man learned once again that bad things happen to good people. The whys and wherefores of the story don't really matter anymore. Was it the Brooklyn Bridge or the George Washington Bridge? Did Jerry Conway really dislike Gil Kane's layouts? Did John Romita really redraw half of the final climactic battle? Where was Ant Major in all of this? All of these questions are ultimately unimportant, due to the fact that, for the first time ever, the hero of the story suffered a catastrophic and irrevocable loss, one that really would alter the course of future storylines, not only of this one character, but for the entire medium. The story may be the quintessential expression of the Peter Parker maxim, no matter how much he wins, he loses. It's hard for us to put this into any kind of context, really. It was a seismic shift in Spider-Man history, and contextually it had never been done before. But for the both of us, it was ancient history. Gwen had been dead for over seven years before I started reading Spider-Man comics properly, and for over two decades before Michael started. I first read it when it was republished, edited, in a UK annual in 1983, and I knew it was an important event, but not really how important. When I was in my most influential years as a reader, around 1980 through 1988, Gwen was rarely referenced. Maybe a passing comment here and there when there was an anniversary issue or a flashback tale, but mostly the creators of the 80s were happy to let Gwen rest in peace. Spider-Man had an almost completely different set of supporting characters in those days, people who never even knew Gwen, so to have people constantly harp on about it would probably have made little sense. She wasn't referenced at all in external media versions of the character. The 60s cartoon happened as she was just starting to become an important supporting character in the comics, so she wasn't included. The 70s live-action show didn't even have Uncle Ben, so Gwen making an appearance was always unlikely. Likewise, she didn't appear in the 80s cartoons or the 90s series, so she never became like Lois Lane, the definitive Spider-Man girlfriend in the eyes of the general public. Even the Sam Raimi movies in the noughties decided to take Gwen's character and graft it on to Murray Jane Watson, played rather insipidly by Kirsten Dunst. It wasn't until the 2000 series, Spectacular Spider-Man, that Gwen would make any kind of cross-media impact. What was your introduction to Gwen Stacy, Michael? That same annual. That same 1983 annual? Yeah. Very nice. It, it was always my favourite Spider-Man story, and I, I, got, I got Nan to read it to me. When I so this was before it. you could read? Yeah. So I, I, I've grown up reading Gwen Stacy's death. And what did Nan think of reading you a story where the central character's girlfriend dies? Oh, no idea. She read it anyway. Did she never say anything? I, I, I don't remember her saying anything. Did she never say, oh, that's a bit sad. Oh, oh that's a bit gruesome. Oh, really? She's dead? I, I think it was more along the lines of, really? Again? <laughs> Alright, fair enough, okay. What's the ultimate version of Gwen? Wasn't she a punk chick? Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed I mean, I liked her, but she's completely different, really. It's like, in the ultimate version, Mary Jane is Buffett and Gwen is Faith. Right, okay. Yeah, that actually makes sense. Mary Jane's not Willow, then. Well, no, she couldn't be Willow, presumably. Yeah. 
She's too attractive to be. Well, not that Will. I'm moving on before Alison Hannigan's lawyers get in touch with her. By the 90s, though, this seemed to change. The comics brought Gwen back for the Clone Saga, and then we seemed to have an influx of writers who seemed fascinated by her. Kurt Busiek kicked it off in Marvels, aided no doubt by Alex Ross's gorgeous painted art, but this seemed to take the idea that everybody fell instantly in love with Gwen the moment they met her and amped it up to 11. My problem with this was it squirred off all the rough edges of Gwen's character, which, despite popular opinion, she did have. She was snarky and competitive in the early days, and had quite the bitchy relationship with MJ, something both Peter and subsequent Spider-Man writers, obsessed with portraying Gwen as a saint, were oblivious to. Jeff Loeb followed this up with Spider-Man Blue, an excellent series, don't get me wrong, but personally I think this should have been the last word on Gwen. Sadly, Marvel couldn't leave well enough alone, and J. Michael Straczynski unearthed her corpse and pissed all over it for <laughs> sins past, which we will discuss a little later. We will probably also, as mentioned at the top of the show, touch upon Amazing Spider-Man 2. So if you haven't seen it, you may want to turn off. No, why am I telling people to turn off? If you haven't seen it, listen anyway. Yes, I'll, I'll pause it, watch it. I'll pause it, go and watch the <laughs> film, and then come yeah. back. Alright, fair enough. For now, though, Amazing Spider-Man 121 is covered 80 June 1973, when I'll have been one year old. One. Little one-year-old. Little one-year-old me in my eye chair watching the 60s Spider-Man cartoon. It's Batman. Okay. Batman. Batman. <laughs> That's where he's calling. Because he's called Rupert Burr. Put Burr. Put Burr. Because I couldn't say Rupert. The cover has Spider-Man swinging away from us, his spider-sense blurring, someone close to me is about to die, he melodramatically intones. Someone I can't save. My spider-sense is never wrong, but who? Who? As if pinned on a wall before him, there are images of J. Jonah Jameson, Harry and Norman Osborn, Murray Jane Watson, Flash Thompson, Gwen Stacy, Aunt May, Robbie and Randy Robertson. Ignoring that this is not how Spider-Man's Spider-Sense works, he doesn't just look at a bunch of people on photos and say, my Spider-Sense is telling me one of these photos is lethal to me. It's not how his Spider-Sense works. But ignoring that, it's not hard to, to look at this. It is hard to look at this, sorry, and be impartial, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's one of those iconic covers. It's become an indelible image in Spider-Man fandom. Not a trick, the cover copy reads. Not an imaginary tale, but the most unexpected turning point in the web-slinger's entire life. How can Spider-Man go on after being faced with this almost unbelievable death? For once, this isn't hyperbole. Pay attention, lovely listeners. This is a legitimate status quo change. <laughs> I also like that the villain is billed as a surprise, something that you couldn't get away with today. With solicitations. Yeah, your solicitations would ruin it, or some blabbermouth on an internet website would ruin it for you. <laughs> or Marvel themselves yeah, yeah. would ruin it the day before it came out, just to get some column inches in it and a tabloid rag, wouldn't they? Yeah. So, you're coughing Rich Johnson's name, though, but Marvel would probably spoil it before he did. Wouldn't they? Yeah. Be honest. In, in today's culture... I actually think this is to the audience's detriment. Mm. Nothing's a surprise anymore, and everyone's cynical and jaded because they know what's going to happen. Yeah. Can we go back to not knowing? I would like every single solicitation right. in every single thing now to just be the title of the book and the creative team. And that's it. And the price and stuff. Well, yeah, but I want all of them to not tell me anything. Yeah. Don't even show us the covers. 
Just, well, these is what are coming out, order it if you want. Aren't solicitations primarily targeted towards retailers and not the Originally, retailers? yes, but then Previews Magazine came along and now yeah. they're all over the internet, aren't they? What do you think of the cover, Michael? I'm, I'm, I'm not big on it. Why not? It's, it's Spider-Man's butt and a lot of floaty heads. <laughs> but they're not floaty, the pictures rather than floaty heads. Well, some of them don't have necks. No, that's true. I mean, it is John Romita. Gwen's got a full body. Aunt May's got a neck. Mary Jane's got half a body. And everyone else is just a floaty head. But it's John Romita, so it, it is the... It's, I won't want to say definitive... Floaty head artist. ...of definitive versions of the characters, but certainly his Mary Jane and his Gwen and his Aunt May... Um, I'll say I don't know about Aunt May. It's hard for me, this, isn't it? Because I love me some Ditko, but when I close my eyes and think of Spider-Man and his supporting cast, it's John Romita's versions that I think of. It's all right, Romita's better than Ditko, anyway. Get out! <laughs> right now. We're not having none of that talk on my 70s shows. Jerry Conway scripted, Gil Kane penciled, and John Romita and Tony Mortarello inked. Or Mortellero. Whatever. Art assignment letter Dave Hunt coloured and Roy Thomas edited. Spider-Man arrives back in New York City after a Daily Bugle sponsored trip to Canada to find Harry Osborn suffering from a bad LSD trip and his father Norman cracking up due to work-related stress. Peter Parker's arrival at the Osborn home makes nobody feel better and Norman's agitation causes him to kick Peter, Gwen and Mary Jane out of the house blaming them for Harry's misfortune. Peter, not wishing a confrontation with his best friend's pal, leaves with the girl. That whole Norman is the Green Goblin and knows Peter is Spider-Man but doesn't remember due to amnesia thing may also play a part in his decision. Harry's doctor tells Norman there's nothing else he can do. Either Harry will pull out of this or he won't. And Norman does exactly what Harry does when stressed out, reaches inward in an attempt to escape his problems. In Norman's case, though, this causes his already fragile mind to snap, his memories to return and the full realisation that, of course, Spider-Man is surely responsible for his business going belly up, just as Peter Parker is responsible for what happened to Harry. We never said Norman was rational. Armed with this knowledge and a clutch of packing bags, the Green Goblin lives again. Oh, come on, I was not not going to do that. <laughs> with no preamble but murderous intent, the Goblin heads straight to Peter Parker's pen, where he finds not Peter, but the lovely Gwen Stacy. When Peter himself returns a short time later, he finds Gwen's handbag lying underneath a pumpkin bag. Spider-Man swings around New York until his Spider-Sense locates the Goblin and an unconscious Gwen atop the Brooklyn George Washington Bridge and moves in. The Goblin retaliates and manages to stun the wall crawler, what with him suffering from a cold and all. Spidey strikes back, hooking the Goblin in with a web line and then punching the smug smile off his face. Spider-Man then runs up the support beams to Gwen, reaching her just as the Goblin reunites with his glider and before Spider-Man can reach the prone blonde bombshell, the Goblin swoops in, kicking the prone figure off the bridge. Without hesitation, Spider-Man shoots his slender web line in the plummeting young woman's direction, hooking her calf, and overjoyed, he reels her back. Joy turns to pain as Gwen's body is unmoving. Pain to sadness as he realises disbelievingly that Gwen is already dead. Sadness turns to rage as holding Gwen's limp form in his arms, Spider-Man swerves vengeance on this, the night Gwen Stacy died. That dramatic enough fight. You think so? I don't think I've, I've equaled me Thor one yet. The oh, Hickle Ragnarok yeah. one. William Shatner. I mean, William Shatner's speech. Yeah. Was that a high point? Did you enjoy that? It, it was one of the high points, yeah. 
When we finish, when everything comes to an end, and we do our top ten best bits. Are we going to do a jump in the shark history? Look, oh, we jumped. We jumped the shark in episode one when we didn't do the format of the show from the very first episode of the show. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, page one, Spider-Man rocks up straight at the Osborne place after Gwen told him about Harry and summoned him back from Montreal. It therefore seems very, very, very stupid of Peter Parker to do this knowing Norman knows who he is and is liable to crack up at any minute. Wouldn't you have got changed round the block and walked here just on the off chance Norman didn't see him out the window? Yeah. Seemed a bit daft to me, that. Peter Parker's supposed to be smart. Yet sometimes for a smart man, he's often very, very dense. But aren't we all? I mean, I'm just primarily (laughs) dense, but, you know. Mary Jane and Gwen are already here. Looking rather splendid in their 70s fashions, it has to be said. He did, yeah, well, Gwen and MJ had this very adversarial relationship, so I can totally believe that Gwen's thought, well, Mary Jane always looks great. so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to outmod her with my seventies threads. Gwen is rocking a sedate dark green turtleneck, which contrasts nicely with her light green jacket, which she wears with her collar up, because it's the seventies. She also has an above the knee purple skirt and calf length leather boots, and of course she's wearing the headband. MJ is wearing a leather jacket with tassels and jeans. Both girls look really good, although MJ says very little. She seems to be in some kind of shock about Harry, and her line later when Peter asks what caused this relapse of Harry's is very telling. MJ seems to be bearing some guilt for this, given how she has treated Harry in recent issues. That primarily pays off that she keeps dumping him Mm. and flirting with Peter. I mean, was she doing that to get up Gwen's nose? Because she never really seemed to care about Harry. Yeah. Or was she just flirting with Peter because she fancied Peter? Was Gwen dying the best thing that ever happened to Murray Jane Watson? Peter, for his part, is wearing a dark green suit. To be fair, it doesn't look bad. But it would have been better in basic black. Never underestimate the appeal of a classic black suit. I did like that he wears his tie undone around his neck, which adds to the feel that he's changed in a bit of a hurry. Yeah. I thought that was quite cool. Because too often they, they get changed and everything's perfect. Yeah. I like it that he's a bit dishevelled and he's, his quiff's a bit messy because he's just pulled the mask off. And I like that. I don't know if that was attention to detail on John Romita's part, mm. but I, I, I thought it was a nice touch of verisimilitude. Norman is seriously cracking up under the strain. We learn over the next few pages that his business stock is down and Harry's problems lead to his guilt over how he treated Harry to be fur. Post-amnesia, Norman didn't treat Harry that badly. But a lifetime of abuse coupled with Norman's belief that he threw enough money at Harry he'd be fine seemed to have taken its toll. You know, I've never seen that page before. No, well, we'll come to this later when we discuss the 1983 UK annual, lovely listeners. But no, that three-quarter length splash. Yeah. Rather pivotal to the story in that it explains who Norman Osborne is. Well. And his backstory. I I knew it anyway. But that's missing. Yeah. Isn't it? But we're, we're going to talk about the UK annual at a later date, so put that thought on hold. Okay. As with all your other thoughts. Yes. Because normally you're a blank page, dude. <laughs> Who knows? I'm a strange guy, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> the Jameson Robbie scene, when Peter goes to the Bugle to sell his pictures of Spider-Man and the Hulk in Montreal is uh, typical of the era and pretty fun all things considered the issue's hardly been a barrel of laughs so far 
what with the abusive fathers, strung out teenagers and general feeling of foreboding hanging over the entire story. A tonal achievement Conway's never achieved a public nod for, but it is nice to get a little bit of humour into the strip at this point. And there's another page you've never seen before. I know, yeah. There's an awful lot. There's about four, I think, all told. So is this issue after that one issue where Harry overdoses? Yeah, that was well before this. That was 98, 96, 97, 98, I think, off the top of me. So that OD wasn't what put him here? No, this is a different OD. This is a relapse Ah. from from his previous drug abuse. Uh, Norman cracks up, as expected, blames Spider-Man, also as expected, and then does a runner to one of his many hideouts, where he uncovers his green goblin stash. One such hideout, many years later, will provide the secret origin of the Hobgoblin. Yeah. True story, swear to God. And then we get to the crux of the matter. The Green Goblin never targeted Gwen in this story. He headed over to Peter's apartment, an apartment he shares with Harry, so it's not like Norman doesn't know where he lives, and finds Gwen there by accident. One of the things I dislike about the Amazing Spider-Man movies is that Gwen, as played rather charmingly by Emma Stone, knows who Peter is. This, to me, takes away from the tragedy of her death. In Amazing Spider-Man 2, Gwen makes a choice to be where she is. This is an important plot point. Whereas in the comics, Gwen's a complete innocent. She doesn't know Peter is Spider-Man. She doesn't know Norman is the Green Goblin. She has no idea why she's kidnapped by this loon in green. And she may even be dead already, for all we know when we first see her again after she's been kidnapped. We never see her conscious again. This, to me, made the story all the more tragic, that loss of innocence that has been written so much about. Gwen is a complete pawn in a much larger game, a game she is completely unaware of. Every single reason that a superhero even has a secret identity is encapsulated in this story. If Norman had not found out who Spider-Man was, hell, if Peter had turned him in, amnesiac or not, this would not have happened, which is the real tragedy of Gwen's story. She dies for no reason at all. Real life comes barreling in, shattering our lovely little comics fictions. Well, about the movies... Yes. I I don't... I think it, it works well within the movies as their own entity that she knew and then died. Well, they kind of changed the plot motivation a little bit in that it's Peter feeling guilty because of the promise he made George Stacey in the first film that he ignores that you you can argue ultimately leads to Gwen dying. Yeah. Whereas in the comics, she never knows any of this and he doesn't make no such promise to George. He knows he's Spider-Man but he says, look after Gwen. Hmm. He, do, he never says to him, leave her alone. Well, which is why her making that choice in knowing Spider-Man works well in the confines of the movie. Yeah, within the confines of Amazing Spider-Man 2, it still works. Yeah. But they've changed the motivations of the characters to make Peter, arguably, feel hmm. more guilty in Amazing Spider-Man 3 about the death of Gwen than he has ever shown about the death of Uncle Ben in this new cycle of films. Amazing Spider-Man 2, he doesn't even catch the burglar anymore, who's not a burglar anymore, that's a conversation for another time. He doesn't catch him. He didn't catch him in the first film. It's not even mentioned in the second film. So in the films, these new current Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone movies, Mm. Spider-Man never caught the person who shot his Uncle Ben. Yeah. Which I think is a, a rather big narrative misstep, because although he knows in the films 
the the guy he let go in the convenience store is the guy that shot him. Yeah. There's no big epic storytelling dramatic reveal where Peter gets to that moment where he catches the guy and realizes if I'd have stopped him earlier, Uncle Ben wouldn't be dead. And that to me is a pivotal character beat in Spider-Man story. If you've not got that, then arguably his story in Amazing Spider-Man is no different to Bruce Wayne's origin. Yeah. Killed by a random mugger. Yes, Spider-Man could have prevented it, but it's a different set of circumstances to the original origin. Mm. Which is why I think if you could blend bits of Amazing Spider-Man with bits of the Sam Raimi ones, you may actually get a perfect Spider-Man movie, but we've not actually got there yet. I think the Amazing's better than... Uh, adjective was well see my problem with that is they've now done the origin twice in ten years and not got it right um, I would have said they've got it right I said it's different I think movies need to be different from the comics which is fine but in both cases he wasn't a burglar which is kind of fundamental to the original story but even know. if you argue that, alright, well at least in the Raimi one, the beat, the emotional beats were still there. He still had the opportunity to stop the guy. He still deliberately didn't stop the guy. Yeah. He let the guy go. He still caught him later and realised, oh hell, this is all my fault. Well, that emotional heart of who Spider-Man is, is not present in The Amazing Spider-Man. I'd, I'd, I'd argue that it doesn't matter what causes it, as long as Peter is somewhat responsible for the death of him. It doesn't matter if it's a no, burglar and or something. No, I'm not disagreeing with that. I, I'm, yeah. I've made my peace with the fact, alright, he's not going to be a burglar, and I'm fine with what you're saying, I agree with you. But there has to be that moment where Peter looks the guy in the eye and realises... This is all my fault. That, that does happen in the first one, doesn't it? No. He knows he's the guy he let go, right. and he's angry about it, but he never has that realisation moment that I could have stopped him. Because in Amazing Spider-Man, Peter's off having a pissy fit, and the guy's robbing the convenience store, and Peter's just, all right, lets him go. Because Peter's on his way out the door. The guy never actually says help, a little help. Yeah. Like he does in the original origin. Peter's just a, a passive observer in a convenience store robbery that's arguably not really anything to do with Peter. He doesn't let the guy go deliberately, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Do you know, th there's a subtle difference in it. I mean, you can still argue, yeah, okay, he lets the guy, he does nothing about it. Yeah. But there's a subtle difference between doing nothing about it and deliberately letting the fella go past him. Stepping back and letting him run through. Yeah. That isn't there in Amazing Spider-Man. There is that, but you could argue that him not doing anything then inspired him to do something as Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, and I can agree with that. But either way, Amazing Spider-Man, for me, is missing that emotional heart where he catches the guy and looks him in the face yeah. and realises this is my fault. That's the point that I'm striving didn't, to get across. Didn't he kill him in Adjectiveless? He didn't... Because he falls out the building. He falls out the... He backs up and trips up and falls out the building. Yeah. Spider-Man doesn't kill him, but doesn't likewise him. he doesn't try to save him yeah. when he falls, which arguably with his web shooter... Oh, he doesn't have web shooters in that one, does he? He has the yeah. stupid organic webbing crap that grows out of his wrist and makes him look like Popeye. <laughs> All he's got that. What, what was it in the comics? Did he just get arrested? No, in the comics he catches him. He right. turns him over to the police. Okay. You know, the comics actually understand that you don't let your lead character kill or let somebody be killed if they can prevent it. Even though his whole origin story is letting someone be killed by not doing something. Yeah, but that's the point of the origin <laughs> yeah. story, isn't it? So, anyway, that's just my, my feelings on the matter. Feel free to email in, lovely listener, if you disagree. Did, but do you not also think that 
in the new Amazing Spider-Man, they rushed Gwen's death. I want to say they rushed Gwen's death, but they rushed the Green Goblin aspect of yes, her death. Yes, I thought the last third of Amazing Spider-Man 2 was pretty weak. I thought the first two thirds were pretty strong and pretty entertaining and very good. Mm. And then the last bit, it's this big confrontation with Electro, which you're expecting. Yeah. Because they're building that up throughout the, the entire film. It's the generic fight, really. Yeah, it's the generic end of any superhero film. Insert big battle here. Yeah. But then Harry Osborn becomes the Green Goblin within, what, 15 minutes? And then he's the Green Goblin for five minutes. And then he's the Green Goblin for five minutes where he swoops in and kills Gwen. There's no emotional resonance to that. But Harry doesn't know... The big misstep for me with Amazing Spider-Man 2 was they should have seeded Harry in the first film. Well, they seeded Norman. Yeah, but not Harry. They, they have this big scene that Harry and Peter knew each other and then he got sent off to boarding school. Yeah. They should have had Harry in high school with them in some case, or maybe just one or two scenes with Harry where he comes home for break or whatever and he meets Gwen. So there's previous history between them. I, I, I quite liked how they handled um, Harry in the second one. He's just a friend from his childhood. He's just come back. Okay. Yeah, but the the death I thought was handled well, but the Green Goblin bits of it weren't. Yeah. If they'd have waited till the third movie. I was honestly thinking they weren't going to kill her off in two. I thought they would have waited till the third one to kill her off. Yeah. But maybe the thinking there was, well, that's a bit of a downer way to end the trilogy. Yeah, but that way you've also got you seed in Green Goblin bit even more. Yeah. Because well, he just shows her out of nowhere and then kills her. So it's. Once again, the finding the more better at writing the Peter Spidey Gwen Stacy stuff than the other the Spidey villain stuff. Yeah, because the villain was arguably the weak spot of the Spider Man. The one was mixed it? into the same scene. The Gwen Peter bits are better than the villain bits. Yeah. I, I don't disagree, but how much is that is just down to the fact that Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone are quite frankly adorable. It's better well written though. Well, as Peter and Gwen. Yeah. See, I love the Spider-Man stuff in this one. I love that he's quippy and funny, and I love that he's friends with the fire department. And yeah. he gets the fireman. Oh, all that stuff, I think's great. Listen, they get the little little bits mm. they get right, they do really well, but the big bits... Yeah, the overall plot yeah. they seem to struggle with. The character moments they seem to have nailed. Yeah. But the overall plot is like, so you've just built up to this big battle with Electro, and then you've just got the Green Goblin show up at the end just so he can kill Gwen. Yeah. I, I felt that was a bit... I didn't think that was particularly well plotted or seeded or set up. It's just, like, it shows up from nowhere. But the handling of the death itself is so strongly written that... Yeah, because the, the death scene itself still causes the same issues that you have with this when we get there. So let's leave that until we, yeah. we actually get to the end of the story. Spider-Man's got a cold, so he just lops himself through his um, apartment window. So if Gwen had been there... Yeah. Bye bye secret identity. <laughs> there, were in, there were bits in this story where I genuinely laugh out loud because of his cold. His cold in this is hilarious. Yeah. Even though it would. Yeah, well, and it's not something they've not done before in Spider Man. Yeah. But it is one of those things you'll give a pass to. It's not like you only ever have one cold in your life, is it? Yeah. And every time you have a cold, it affects you differently. It's a different strain of the virus. Mm. So you may get it's a cold. kryptonite. Yeah, I mean, yeah, essentially. <laughs> so essentially, he, uh, he's got one of those really painful head colds where it's all behind your eyes, which yeah. are the most irritating kind. But can you imagine if he had that kind of cold that was just a constant runny nose in that mask? <laughs> yeah. That'd be just gross, wouldn't it? You just have some tissues under the yeah, mask. Yeah, just stuff tissue up his nostrils while he's in the mask. <laughs> uh, at this juncture, Spider-Man 
goes after the goblin. The goblin wants him to find him, obviously. So he uses his spider sense to locate where they are. That's, again, not how his spider sense works. Is it? His spider sense doesn't lead him to people. I'm a little more accepting of it because, at least for me anyway, it's always in the video games. I'm not sure if it's in any other media, but definitely in the video games, it's always been. It's essentially saying, you know, your waypoints that says, go here. Yeah. It's always been, my spider sense tells me to go here. Yeah. So. I don't mind that in the video game. I, no, I, I. Because, you know, I've been playing it since the old PlayStation 1 games. That's always been... Right, okay, because there's never actually been a definitive explanation of what his spider sense is. No, there is that, and, and right the, to... In the Dan Slaughter stuff, his spider sense has been kung fu moves. Yeah, and Dom Tom DeFalco has said get three Spider-Man writers and three Spider-Man editors in the same room, and not one of them will agree on how his spider sense works. Yeah. But my personal interpretation of how his spider sense works is it's an early warning system to warn him of danger to him... Or something that is an immediate threat to himself him. or somebody close to him who yeah. is with him at that particular moment. And he doesn't know where that threat is from or what form that threat will take. But he just knows. But he knows something's happening, which is pretty cool if you think about it. Yeah. Because you've not got that whole Ms. Marvel seventh sense thing where she knows, oh, Joan has just been kidnapped and I know exactly <laughs> where he is. Yeah. You've not got that with spider sense. It's an early warning signal that something is awry, but he doesn't know what, he doesn't know where from, he doesn't know what form that danger is taking place, so he's instantly on the alert. Yeah. It does not lead him to somebody in this way, unless the Green Goblin had picked up a spider tracer, which does lead him. To yeah. specific places. Now that would have made sense to me if Green Goblin had picked up a spider tracer in Spider-Man's apartment because the Green Goblin wants him to be wants Spider-Man to find him. Yeah. That one little line there, he picks up a spider tracer and says, ha, come to me, little spider, and I'd have been down with it. Yeah. But I don't I'd never bought, even as a kid, I never bought his spider sense leading him to Gwen. Now, you could argue he's just swung around the city. Until his spider sense was in close enough proximity to go off, because you can argue, well, if there is a bigger threat to Spider-Man personally than the Green Goblin at this moment, I don't know what it is. But that's not what he says. He didn't just swing around and then go, right, my spider sense is tingling, I'm picking something up. He swung oh, around, like following hot, hot, it. Yeah. Warm, yeah. yeah, he followed it to exactly where they were, which isn't my interpretation of how his spider sense works. Well, I'm more, unless it's something really stupid, like he can turn into a giant spider and <laughs> shoot jet rockets out of his feet. I'm more open to what the spider sense is. You don't mind it being a vague plot device to yeah. service the story? Because that's all it is anyway. Uh, yeah... Alright, fair enough. Alright, that's it's a it's a little niggly nitpick thing that yeah. bugged me. But, but you, you could argue that Gwen's in danger, so it's a tracking device to Gwen being in danger. But then you've got the thing that what distance does this thing work at then? Maybe it genuinely is a warm, hot water <laughs> thing. Hot, hot, oh no, it's stopping tingling, better go back this way. Like in the video games. Like in the video games, when you're all over everywhere, yeah. Uh, Speaking of, the Brooklyn judge, Washington Gaff, (laughs) is one of the most famous in comics. Jerry Conway. We've had this before. We have. Jerry Conway says he typed George Washington. Kane, for whatever reason, drew Brooklyn. The editor didn't catch it. In this particular instance, I think the blame for this is squarely on the editors. Jerry Conway's wrote his script... 
He's yeah. done with it. He passes it over to the artist. Artist draws the wrong bridge. That's the editor's job to spot. Yeah. Conway may not have even looked at the art. I don't know if this was done Marvel style. If Conway did the dialogue after the art came in, I've got no idea. This could have been tightly scripted for all I know. Yeah. But I think that's an editor's goof. I don't think you can blame the right. I mean, I don't know why Gil Kane drew a different bridge. When it clearly says George Washington, what do I know? Maybe, I maybe he was York. stood there in between the two bridges, looking at both. So we, we maybe up Maybe he could only up. find reference for the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> the internet it. didn't exist. Yeah, so you thought, screw it, I'm drawing this one. No one's ever going to know. <laughs> yeah. It's not like this single comic is ever going to become anything. <laughs> so, all right, fair enough. The fight between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin is, as you would expect, pretty quick fitting in with Spider-Man wanting this over as he's feeling a little bit crap because of his head cold. It's obviously Gwen that we're interested in and it's worth noting that as Spider-Man heads towards Gwen, his spider sense tingling, the art is a little bit off. Spider-Man is near Gwen, then he's practically on top of her, then he's on the floor as the goblin attacks. Is the implication here in the art that Goblin in his glider hits both Spider-Man and Gwen? and knock Spider-Man out the way, is that? Because that's not what the art gets across to me. No. The art to me says he kicks Gwen off the bridge, and Spidey's just sat there going, Oh! Like that. Well, maybe he goes to hit Gwen, and Peter moves out of the way to avoid being hit. But either way, the art doesn't get this across, does it? Yeah. The art is quite muddled here, as to what is actually happening. Which, you know, anyway... Goblin knocks Gwen off the bridge, she falls. We have not seen Gwen move or communicate in any way since she was kidnapped. She could easily be already dead. We don't know this for a fact. Spider-Man catches her calf, which is really odd, because in the previous panel, the art shows that she's falling feet first, and the webbing is going for her wrist. So again, the art's a little bit muddled there. That, and he catches a leg, but then... Then he's webbing her up by her waist. (laughs) So the art is is really muddled in this sequence. Uh, We we get the infamous snap as Spider-Man catches her. Is that... I think that might be smaller than in the annual. Uh, I don't know. Should we have a look? Yeah, because there is a very definite snap in the annual. Let's have a look in our 1983 British annual. No, it's just be. Oh, no, but it's a different colour. Yeah. So it stands out more. Yeah, the colouring in the UK annual, the snap is red, so it stands out more. Whereas in the... We're reading this in the Death of the Stacey's Marvel Masterwork edition. Um, is this a Marvel Masterwork or a Marvel Premiere edition, isn't it? Marvel Premiere hardcover. The snap is white. Yeah. So it stands out more in the UK annual. Good catch. Unlike Spider-Man with Gwen. <laughs> uh, Peter doesn't hear the snap. Crucially, no. that's that's pretty uh, pretty heartbreaking bit. Actually, yes, it's indicated and spelt out in the letters page to Amazing Spider-Man issue one hundred and twenty-five that Spider-Man broke Gwen's neck here, and that's what killed her. Right now, that's what they say in the letters page. I consider the letters page to be supplementary yeah. media. It's basically like canon versus non-canon with Star Wars and Star Trek and all that stuff. The books are not canon. What's on screen is canon. Yeah. If it's not in the story, it doesn't count. Yeah. 
And I'm of that opinion with deleted scenes as well. <laughs> you know this. Yeah. You can go, I mean, in a deleted scene, yeah, but that scene's not in the film, is it? Is always my argument. Right. If okay. it's not in the film, if it's not on the page, it ain't on the stage. So as far as I'm concerned here, there is no clear indicator that Peter snapped her neck. Now, maybe I'm just in denial. Because I actually think that that is an absolutely horrible thing to do to your lead character. Have him be responsible for snapping the neck of his lover. But is this two-part story not just putting Peter through the worst yeah. possible things you can put him yes, through? Yes, there is that argument, and I subscribe to it wholeheartedly. That's the point of this issue. It's the Joss Whedon thing. Yeah. You have to torture the characters you love, otherwise there is no to drama. entertaining. Yeah. But actually making him responsible for her death, even though he doesn't know that, for me, that's crossing the line. And that's ultimately why I've always subscribed to the opinion she was already dead. As a kid, that was certainly my indication. I never wrapped my head around a child that Spider-Man was responsible for this. Well, I mean, because we never find out from an autopsy or anything, do we? What yeah. actually killed her. Because we never get that in the comics. Issue 123, is it? Mm. 123 opens with Gwen's funeral. Yeah. So if there has been an autopsy, it's off-panel. So that's that's my interpretation. I know what Amazing Spider-Man letters page number 125 says. I don't buy it. Well, it, it could It's possible work. she's dead and he broke her Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, she could already be dead because that's quite hinted at. Yeah. And he snaps her neck. Oh, she's still alive and he snaps her neck. Either way, she's dead. Yeah. Isn't she? And either way, the bit that happens next is, like, the worst bit in the entire two-part story. What? Well, Where he, he's, like, really overjoyed that he's just rescued her. Yeah. And slowly realises she's dead. That she's dead. It is quite heartbreaking. It is It is quite sad. I mean, then the goblin shows up and waffles about the foul would kill her before hitting the ground, which is bollocks. <laughs> Any, ask anybody who's ever fell from a great height and survived. The fall don't kill you. Does it knock you out or something? Or it, you, can, you can black out, yeah. which may be a mercy if you're plummeting from a great height to a concrete <laughs> yeah. floor, but the fall itself does not kill you. Mm. It's that sudden stop at the end. The 499 foot drop doesn't yeah, kill the you. The 499 <laughs> foot drop may actually be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. It's just the last one. Unfortunately, that last, that last moment kind of ruins it for Kind of kills the mood. It, and not just the mood. <laughs> In many ways. But yeah, that, that final, penultimate final, that penultimate page is, is, is shockingly yeah. gut-wrenching, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, it's very sad. The last page is where we learn the title of the story, which is a trick that's been overplayed many times since. Yeah. I mean, every issue of Bloody Flash Rebirth, the title was on the last page, wasn't it, for yeah. some reason? That well, I never now understood. it's just a cinematic device. But here, there was a, a very definitive and reason they say at the beginning as well like we won't tell you the title until you read the rest of the story yeah because and believe us you know you'll, you'll yeah. know why when we get there people flock to the internet well that's enough you couldn't have kept that that last page that would have been on Facebook that would have been the preview yeah yeah so you know uh, one it's of, like having the plot twist of Planet of the Apes as the poster. <laughs> yes, it's like having the plot, the twist end of the Planet of the Apes as the DVD cover. It's like having the DVD cover of the Sixth Sense say, "Mind-blowing t- twist: Bruce Willis is dead." That was, uh, you know, the articles on Cracked. I've just spoiled Sixth Sense. Sorry. But there was an article on Cracked about what movies are called in foreign countries. Yeah, and was it called so, Bruce Willis is a ghost? No, there's uh, <laughs> some Asian country literally translated to. He is dead. 
<laughs> Did the crying game translate to she's got a dick? <laughs> I, I, I don't think. <laughs> the Japanese title. Japanese title is Hentai Volume 2. <laughs> she's got a cock. Issues that comics readers who haven't even read it have an opinion on. Issue 121 of The Amazing Spider-Man breaks all the rules of sequential superhero storytelling. The main character's best friend spends the issue in an LSD-induced haze. The lead villain spends most of the issue, likewise, on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Peter Parker himself isn't the central character, and Gwen, who arguably should be the focus of the story, barely appears when not unconscious on top of a bridge. Peter and Gwen don't even get a final scene together, with the last interaction before she dies taking place off-page. It's arguably a series of character beats in search of a story, but what character beats? Mark Wade recently said that no one remembers plot, they remember character. And it's the characters who carry this paper-thin plot through to its tragic resolution. Peter is a passive observer, perhaps a comment on the reactive nature of the superhero medium, standing helplessly by as his best friend and his worst enemy crack up and destroy his life from both angles. Norman and Harry are very much alike, and Conway does a good job with that angle of the script. Both men are ultimately weak-willed, turning to drugs and or super-personas to escape the problems of their everyday lives. Confronting their own inadequacies is not on the menu for the Osborne boys. Everything is somebody else's fault. Norman, for his part, is more murderous than we've ever seen him before. He heads straight over to Peter's apartment for a presumably final confrontation. There is an idea here that Norman wants to die, to prevent him from having to confront his business going down the tubes and his inadequacies as a parent, but I think this is probably subtext and not really something Jerry Conway had in mind. Gwen is merely a pawn. Peter has taken away Harry, so Norman takes away Gwen. Another angle to consider, if Peter had turned Norman in when he had the chance, Gwen would still be alive. Peter's compassion ultimately cost him his lover. The issue rattles along at an impressive pace, no scenes are too long, and the dialogue serves the story, but one can't help but feel Gwen, a long-standing supporting character, deserved a better send-off than this. Conway said she was a boring character and he wanted Peter to be with MJ, a far more vibrant and interesting person to write about. But if a character is boring, whose fault is that? Maybe, and I just throw this out there for discussion, the writer of the book? Whilst this issue is a perfect example of the loss of innocence, the desire to shake things up permeates the entire story. And ultimately, it's a great issue, but not a very good story. What do you think, Michael? I don't know. I kind of like... Um, the random nature of it. Yeah, because... Life sucks. Deal with it. Yeah, and it's like, she doesn't have a big send-off, but people don't. The fact that it's not a big send-off, and she might have even died off-panel, grounds it a lot more and makes it that much yeah, more... Yeah, I'm not arguing the last half of the story where she's essentially unconscious for all of it, and then he's dead. Yeah. I'm, I'm simply arguing we never got a final Peter and Gwen scene something that he as a character could look back on and remember. If, as far as we're concerned, the last time he sees her, it's with drug-addled Harry and Murray Jane. Yeah. And then he says, come on, ladies, I'll go and buy you a Coke. We don't see that scene. Does Murray Jane go with them? Or does Murray Jane go, I'm not being a gooseberry for these two, you two go off and have a drink, I'm just going to go home, I'm not feeling too well. Never being explored later on. As far as I know, we have never got... 
Gwen's last scene with Peter. Even in Spider-Man Blue, which would have been the perfect place to put it, and Spider-Man Blue hammers the nail in the coffin of Sin's past in many ways. But we'll talk about that when we get to Sin's past. But the thing with that is, is the fact that it doesn't have that final bit make it a lot more of an impact, that it's just out of nowhere. Yeah, well, I suppose you could you could also say that then Peter's got this final memory of Gwen that we, the audience, have never seen. Yeah. Which does kind of make it a little bit more sweet hmm. that he's got this something that we have never been privy that to. him as a character is that private memory. Yeah, that we don't know about. Yeah. But certainly in terms of structuring your story, and let's not forget, stories are not real life. Yeah, yeah. There are certain tenets to a story that we expect to be there as a viewer, a reader, or whatever. And not having the final Peter and Mary Jane, Mary Jane, Peter and Gwen moment <laughs> is kind of breaking the rules of, of the story. It's a brave decision. Yeah. If it was an intentional decision, I'm not entirely convinced it was. Mm. But it's, it's, there's kind of an unsatisfying element to it. I'm not yeah. arguing with you that her actual death is random and comes out of nowhere, and that's what life is like. Yeah. That's all fine. I'm just saying there's a certain storytelling convention though he's missed. And if he's done it deliberately for the play to him. Yeah. If he's not, that's quite a serious omission. I mean again we're going back to the Joss Whedon thing, but I think Joss Whedon knows a hell of a lot to these comics mm. as a storyteller. Buffy is Spider Man. I mean there's loads of people who said she's Kitty Pride and it's the X Men. No it isn't. Buffy the first three seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer are the amazing Spider Man. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing he would do in breaking with storytelling convention. Yeah. Uh, I just don't know, and I don't think, that that's what Jerry Conway had in mind. I mean, he may have done, in which case, like I say, fair play to him for doing something that deliberately defies storytelling convention. All right, fair enough. Amazing Spider-Man 122, The Goblin's Last Stand, was by the same creative team and was cover dated July 1973. The cover, again by John Romita, has the Green Goblin hurling pumpkin bombs at Spider-Man, still clutching the dead body of Gwen Stacy as the Goblin screams, Heads up, wall crawler! First I finished off Gwen Stacy, now it's your turn! Wrong, Goblin, retorts Spider-Man. You murdered the only girl I'll ever love and today's the day you're going to die! You like me dramatic readers? That's very good, yeah. The Goblin and Spider-Man look at the very best. Of all the villains originated by Ditko, I think John Romita took the Green Goblin and made him his own. The fact that the cars drive underneath completely oblivious is one of the subtlest indicators that life goes on that I think I've ever seen in a comic book story. What do you think of that? Other than the proportions being wrong. Oh yeah, there's a bridge to build up below yeah. them. Have you never noticed that? <laughs> the proportions on that cover are astonishingly bad. I don't think I've ever actually seen that cover before. You know, that's a poster! That's a frigging t-shirt, that I mean, I've, I've seen the first one, yeah, but like, like I said before, I've, I've just read it in the annual, which doesn't have the covers in no. it. Yeah, well, other than the proportions being completely out to lunch, which is kind of unforgivable for an artist of John Romita's stature. There's a certain element of, I can see why he did it to make it all fit on that cover. I mean, arguably, if the Green Goblin was in that position in a real context, he would be much closer to us, wouldn't he? Hmm. He would have to be for that to work. As it stands there, he's proportionally much too big 
for where he should be in relation to Spider-Man and Gwen, or Gwen and Spider-Man are too small, the top of the Brooklyn slash George Washington Bridge, I don't know which one Ramita drew. Is that Brooklyn? I have no idea. It looks like Brooklyn, doesn't it? Is too small. The traffic behind them is a little bit too big. Proportionally, it's completely off-kilter. Oh, George Washington, actually. Is it? I don't know. But And we don't live in New York. We're forgiven for not knowing this stuff. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Know, really. But as a cover, it's pretty damn good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too much cover dialogue, I think. I don't think it needs the Goblins dialogue. No. I think it, it goes over the, the logo. Yeah, I think it just needs Spider-Man saying, you've murdered the only girl I'll ever love, and today you're going to die. Yeah. It, that's all it needs. It doesn't even need the Green Goblin's last stand. Uh, it's funny how in the last issue they wouldn't say the title until the end because it was... Spoilers. A spoiler. But on this one, that's a spoiler anyway. Now, I know it's... It's a month a, later. Well, I guess, but I know they, they say a lot of it in covers anyway where it's like, this is this character's last stand. But considering this actually is the Green Goblin's last stand, is that not a bit of a spoiler? Uh, yes, but the, there's a very clear indication, though, that let's be honest, as comics we're readers, we're used to covers lying to us. Only so this just time. because that's the cover, don't make it so. Well, is that not an even big plot twist, the fact that the cover was right? Yeah. The cover's not lying to you in this <laughs> yeah. particular instance. You just don't believe it. Yeah, because you're conditioned to go, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you've killed Green, the Gwen Stacy, and now it's the, yeah, okay, pull the other one, Marvel. Like, you're going to do that. <laughs> and then you get to the end of the comic and go, oh, hell, they actually did it. Yeah. Oh, dear, mate. I do like the line of dialogue, you just murdered the only girl I'll ever love. To think um, Jeff Loeb's reading this going, you know what, I'm going to write a comic. <laughs> and establish that that is in fact true. <laughs> yeah. Poor Mary Jane. The Green Goblin taunts the wall crawler, who is still clutching Gwen's body, and he web swings down to the floor and gently places her on the docks. Spider-Man then has had enough and leaps on the Goblin's shoulders, pounding him mercilessly until the Green Goblin starts to panic and beg. Spider-Man, more angry than ever before, continues to punch the Goblin around the head, but so distracted is the web spinner, the Goblin manages to manoeuvre his glider and knock Spider-Man off, thanks to a conveniently located support beam. Falling to the water, Spider-Man manages to catch a web line on a nearby strut and swing back up, but the Goblin is nowhere to be seen. A crowd, however, can be seen, gathering around Gwen's body. Spider-Man drops down, telling everyone to back off, including a gung-ho rookie cop and a more experienced sergeant. The sergeant holds the rookie back, saying Spider-Man is clearly in pain. As the ambulance arrives, the sergeant tries to appeal to Spider-Man, but Spidey says Gwen has no need of an ambulance. She's dead, and Spider-Man killed her. This is all the rookie needs to hear, and he draws his gun. The sergeant reluctantly tries to arrest Spider-Man, but the wall crawler pushes free and swings off into the night. Peter changes and heads to Harry to try and locate Norman, but Harry is so strung out he barely knows Peter is there. Switching back to Spider-Man, he then heads to Robbie Robertson and asks if Norman Osborn has been seen anywhere recently. Robbie is still recovering from the news Gwen is dead himself, but helps Spider-Man out, and within moments his sources have placed Osborn at a warehouse off 23rd Street and 9th Avenue. Spider-Man arrives at said destination and ambushes the Goblin. The fight mangles the Goblin glider and Gobby is all, Oh no, not the masterpiece of technological design! While Spider-Man can barely listen to the man and proceeds to punch the living crap out of him in a relentless barrage of blows that leave Norman reeling and Spider-Man shocked at his own brutality. As he tries to come to terms with his actions, the Goblin glider arises past Spider-Man and speeds forth towards the unsuspecting wall crawler's back. 
A last minute spider sense warning alerts our hero who gets to ducking and the point of the glider sharpened and mangled in the fight hits the green goblin in the chest with such force it carries him backwards pushing him into a far wall and piercing his heart. His body slumps ignominiously to the floor. Norman's death makes Spider-Man feel nothing, just empty. At home, Murray Jane waits for Peter and tells him how sorry she is to hear about Gwen. Peter unkindly mocks her and tells her to get out. After all, there must be a party somewhere she can go to. Murray Jane, distraught and angry, turns to leave and even opens the door before she pauses. Closing the door, she turns back to help Peter any way she can. The story picks up exactly where it left off. The art on the splash page is particularly lovely. Very detailed, especially in the backgrounds. I wonder if that is a genuine view from the top of that bridge. Don't know. I wonder if that photo reference is accurate. Don't know. Kill to find out, wouldn't it? First indication that Peter is losing it, understandably so, is on page two. He places Gwen's body gently on the docks and then proceeds to pound on the goblin relentlessly. Goblin even begs, which is Conway showing that, like all villains, the goblin is a coward. The goblin has always been cowardly, so this is in his nature. Whenever he's gone against Spider-Man in the past, he's tried to stack the deck in his favour, or he's manipulated others to do his fighting for him, or he's stayed a hidden man in the background. He only manages to shut Spider-Man off here because Spider-Man isn't paying attention. It did seem like it could have undercut the drama a little bit here by essentially have Spider-Man bang his head on a beam like a comedic Looney Tunes character. Yeah. It is a bit he's flying around and oh no! Poof! You just expected a kudunk sound effect didn't you? And then twink 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 <laughs> But this is a very serious story. Yeah. So we ain't got time for, for stuff like that. The scene with Gwen's body being surrounded by rubber neckers and cops is very well done. Uh, I loved that Spider-Man was an arrogant little snot here, and the crowd is visibly scared of him, thanks to Jameson's stories in The Bugle. Contrast this with the Amazing Spider-Man movies, where the public love him. I loved the cop who could tell that Spidey was in pain, and that this death had meant something to him, but the rookie was only interested in arresting him, and presumably making his name and getting a promotion. Yeah, I really like that, actually. Because I'm one of those people who gets really annoyed about how people never liking Spider-Man. I get it, it's a part of Spider-Man story, but the fact that everybody seems to hate him all the time, and I did like that someone was on his side and could see what was going on. Yeah, that's it was a nice little character beat, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a lovely little moment where the sergeant was, leave the guy alone, mm. he's in pain, and the other cop was like, no, I'm going to shoot him. It was good. It was a really nice bit. Well, they both decided to shoot him anyway in the next bit. Well, yeah, but the other guy does it reluctantly. Yeah. So that seems fair enough. I think they do it because Peter stupidly says, I killed her. Oh, well done, Peter. Well, that, I think that's right and, and proper, to be honest with you. It reveals his mindset. He's going to believe himself to be responsible. Oh, yeah, but it's a stupid this. thing to say in front of the police and the, the New York yeah, journalist. Because he's not talking literally there is it he's driven by guilt yeah. he doesn't know the snap heard around the world mm. does he? he he thinks I don't know what he thinks I don't know what he thinks killed her but that's his guilt speaking but now that he's essentially admitted that yeah the cops have no choice but to take him in yeah it was a good little character moment and I liked it a lot uh, there's a two page flashback just before that was the closest thing we get to a eulogy for Gwen and Peter remembers how it was and all the time Spider-Man came in between them. There is a lot more 
to this artwork as well. If you look at these two pages especially, there's a lot more Ramita than there is Gil Kane. And there is a rumour that Kane was significantly redrawn by Ramita. And on this issue, I can totally believe it. The last one looked a lot Ramita-y as well, though. Maybe he redrew both. I know there's very definitely rumours that he redrew the last half of this book significantly. Yeah. And certainly Murray Jane is a Ramita Murray Jane. She's not a, a Gil Kane Murray Jane. Well, I'd say a lot of it looks Ramita at the very least. Well, he is inking. And I think the thing with Ramita, his inking does overpower whoever the penciler is. Yeah. So there's a certain element of that to it. But even the panel layouts, the latter half of the boot, the panel layouts don't look like Gil Kane mm. to me. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know if we'll ever know unless the... the the pencils have shown up somewhere. That would be nice. Spider-Man changes clothes on a rooftop on page 9, which begs the question, where did these clothes come from? Peter arrived home as Spider-Man, remember? Yeah. Because he fell through the window. And earlier in the day, he was wearing his suit because right. he was just straight off the plane in Montreal. He didn't have that suit with him when he got home, so God knows where he put it. Well, he has little... Not safe houses, but safe bags. Yeah, clothes stashed all yeah. around the city. Clothes stashes. For just such an occasion. But he has them in important places, like the Bugle, his house... Opposite Harry's house. Murray's, all that. <laughs> yeah. So he's got enough money to have clothes stashed all around the city, has he? But it? he's just got his wardrobe scattered around. Alright. Uh, his, his wardrobe is nicely 70s. Again, he's rocking <laughs> the stylish 70s turtleneck yeah. and the, the big belt buckle which were popular in the early 70s. And he's got a nice tan leather jacket and jeans. Mm. So he's almost Hutchinson from Starsky and Hutch. Almost, <laughs> yes, isn't yeah. he? The turtleneck and the leather jacket. Yeah. He's almost David Soule, but not blonde. Obviously. Someone gave up on him, baby. <laughs> hey old silver lady. Uh, what Kane is visible is in the Harry and Peter sequences. Mm. These are very definitely Gil Kane, at least panel layouts, whether they were just layouts... Or whether they were full pencils and Ramita's just heavy-handed in these inking, I don't know. But Kane draws Peter with crazy eyes with large black circles underneath them to signify Peter losing it. It's an exemplary sequence, I think, showing Peter has really been pushed over the edge. He's using his best friend. And when Harry can't give him what he wants, he just discards him. Yeah. And it's reprehensible behaviour of his supposed best friend and yet totally understandable. It's like the polar opposite of his personality anyway. Yeah, but that's that's what's good about it. I think that's what's great about it. Peter Parker was a real flesh and blood three-dimensional character. He yeah. was heroic, but he was capable of being an ass. He's a, a stand-up guy, but he's capable of being an arrogant jerk he's, on occasion. He's, he's the reader. Yeah, he's a real guy. Yeah. We all have moments where we look back and we think, I snapped then and there was no reason for it. Mm. And I've just snapped at somebody that I genuinely love for no reason other than I'm in a bad mood. Yeah. And we all have moments where we're arrogant and we all have moments where we're snotty. And we all have moments where we come home and work's been crap. And we take it out on you, our children, or we take it out on our wife. And here, uh, that's that taken to the nth degree, because comics are melodrama. Yeah. And it makes you like him more, because well, he's an arrogant asshole here. Yeah. And I, I think that's what draws you to the character. He's not perfect. He's not squeaky clean. He he's makes relatable. mistakes. He's, re- he's, a, he's a 
at his best, he is a normal person yeah. who happens to be a superhero. But the, that that scene and Harry's dialogue is almost as heartbreaking as the Gwen stuff. Yeah, when he's just he's left begging him that slam, and he's just saying, "I'm all alone." Yeah, he's begging him not to leave him, yeah. not to leave him alone. If Peter had stayed here, he may have been able to help him go cold turkey. Mm. And Peter goes, "Is this it? Am I just going to turn my back on my friend for vengeance?" And then he goes, "Yeah, I am." Yeah, and the fact that he knows that's what he's doing—he's aware of he's it. He's aware yeah. of it. He's totally aware of what he's doing, which here. makes it that much worse. Yeah, but at the same time, it makes it that much better. Yeah, because it's a great little character moment. I think somebody, you know, may disagree. By contrast, the Robbie Robertson Spider-Man scene didn't work for me at all. Did it not? No, it's all right. Spider-Man's now wanted for murder, right? Right. Robbie, irrespective of whether he believes Spider-Man to be guilty, which he clearly doesn't, yeah. but irrespective of that, he had a duty to at least call the police and tell him he's here and turn him in. Right. Right? Irrespective of all of that, he helps Spider-Man locate Norman Osborn. Now, Robbie's a newspaper man and has been to, seen to be a very intelligent newspaper man. He's long thought, or we as a reader have been led to believe at this point, that Robbie has long thought there is a connection between Peter and Spider-Man. Okay. Right? Peter and Gwen were boyfriend and girlfriend. Robbie knows this. Yeah. And then Spider-Man shows up and asks him, were Norman Osborn his? After Gwen has just been killed in the vicinity of the Green Goblin. You're not telling me no one saw that all happen on the top of the bridge. Or at the very least saw Spider-Man and the Goblin. They may not have seen Gwen. Yeah. Right? He's far too bright of a character to not start putting all this together. But is he not far too bright enough to not ask? Because if he asks, then he'll know. Yeah, if but he'll I'm, know, then he has to be... I'm not about. saying that, but I'm saying he's far too bright to not put it together. Yeah. If there was any leeway before that Robbie didn't know, I think this know. issue pees all over it. But yeah. again, it's something that's never been followed up. Only in little bits. Like in the Clone Saga issues I've just read, yeah. there is a guy who has figured out there's a connection. Ken Ellis is a Bugle reporter. And he's figured out there's a connection between Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Right. But at this point in the story, Spider-Man is now Ben Riley. Yeah. And Peter and Murray Jane have moved away and Peter has no powers anymore. So he's right, but he's wrong. Yeah. But Robbie scotches his investigation. Right. To prove there's a link between Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Now, the story gives the reason that Robbie just wants Peter to have, a, to have gone away and get on with his life. Yeah. But is the, there's the little subtext, though, that Robbie knows he was... But now he can't be. So Robbie's covering Peter's tracks. It works. It works, yeah. And that's what I like about the Robbie Robertson thing. They've never flat out said he knows. Yeah. But there is enough subtext in a good writer's work that if you want to think he's pieced it together, you can go that route. Which is far more subtle, I think, than a huge retcon. But then it'll just be Ben Riley and Daredevil all again. No, I, d- Eric, I, even. I don't want them to ever confirm or deny it. That's yeah. what I'm saying. I want them to leave it ambiguous that if you as a reader think Robbie knows, okay, there's enough there to support you. But if you as a reader think, no, he doesn't, there is also enough not said that you can go with that interpretation as well. Yeah. I, I prefer it, to so be honest. Am I also the only person who thinks that, from what I've read anyway, Robbie is the only, the only genuinely good character, good guy in all of Spider-Man? Because he always does the right thing and always does it for the right reasons, even though lawfully he should turn Spider-Man in, but he goes against 
what he should do and does what he thinks he so should Robbie do. So Robbie Robertson is the only morally unincorrupt character in Spider-Man comics discourse. Yeah. Actually, that's, that's, that's not actually a bad theory, yeah? Because he is, isn't he? He is yeah. morally incorrupt. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd never actually considered yeah, that. I was, I was half expecting you to just turn me down. Eh? No, no, no. I mean, there are subsequent stories where you realise he's not as, as apple pie as you think. Yeah. But he is... Yeah, he's he's the guy who always does the right thing, and he's he's the bastion of newspaper journalistic integrity, isn't he? Mm. I mean, there's Ben Urich, possibly. Yeah, but he's a little bit more old school pulp journalist, isn't he? The crumpled thing, the crumpled coat, and the smoking, and yeah. the, occasionally a lean on somebody to get a story. Yeah, Robbie's Robbie's incorruptible, isn't he? Mm. I'd never considered that. That's that's a very very good point. The final confrontation builds from the events of the issue, with Peter really losing it, taking his pain out on the Goblin, and again, understandably so. He's been an emotional character all the way through his existence, and these emotions spill over into both of his lives. I think while Spider-Man was Peter's escape from everyday life, there was never really that much separating them. Arguably, Spider-Man allows Peter to be who he always wanted to be, when he wasn't being bullied. He's funny, he's confident, he's self-assured. Here, though, he's just pissed off. Throughout his career, the Green Goblin has been a thorn in his side, and Spider-Man had restrained himself due to him being his best friend's father. Interestingly, Conway had Harry be strung out this issue, taking that excuse off the table. The moment where Spider-Man realises he's gone too far is another highly effective emotional beat in in this story, where he just pounds relentlessly on the Green Goblin for a page... And then pulls back when he realises, actually, I could kill him here. Yeah. And I'm not willing to cross Even that line. Even though almost every single reader sat there going, do it, do it. Yeah. Well, that's that's the good manipulation of a good writer in a good story. Yeah. Even though I would argue this isn't a particularly good story, yeah. it is a, a hugely emotionally impactful edition of Spider-Man. And yeah, you're right. As a reader, you're saying, pound him to hamburger. Yeah, and then you have that moment where you realise but if he does that he's just as bad Mm. and isn't he our hero so isn't he supposed to represent something better than that isn't he supposed to be better than us ultimately and then you have that same moment with him where he goes ah don't kill him but then you've got the thing well what do we do he knows he's Spider-Man can't just turn him in Yeah. so it's, uh, it's quite interesting uh, one of the sound effects is chunt C-H-U-N-T which can easily be misread what to hunt yes that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking it can be misread to hunt that's exactly where I was I going I can see a chunk and, and not, a bunt and not see you next Tuesday no gronk no there is no gronk <laughs> no right okay it's quite big as well yeah. yes it is and if I put my finger there then it's, it looks like gunt or gint <laughs> <laughs> alright well as long as you're not seeing the word that I'm seeing that's perfectly acceptable the Mark Miller in me can totally see that I don't want Mark Miller in me. <laughs> Thank you very much. The Goblin's ultimate fate, crucified on his glider, is quite graphic for the time, but as befits the time, is bloodless. They would mimic this scene to lesser effect, as the history of the two characters isn't as great in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movie. That, it, it is quite graphic as well, especially because he's held up. Yeah. He's very most sincerely dead here. Yeah, yeah. Isn't he? Mm. Despite subsequent revelations, (laughs) he's very definitely dead. Amazing Spider-Man 2... Do you think Amazing Spider-Man 3 is going to play this out? Because another of my problems with Spider-Man 2 is they've just skipped over Norman Osborn and gone straight to Harry. 
and there's always a feeling with me they're deliberately trying not to do what Sam Raimi did in which case why reboot it at all yeah but the flip side of that is well you're not doing the story then are you so I don't I don't know how I feel about that Mm. Um, it's it's its own entity, so I don't mind it. Yeah, all right. It's just a, another telling of the same, yeah. the same story. You know what I really like with this death scene, though. Yeah. Um, Peter realizes that he can't kill him because then he's not who he sets out to be, right? Yep. But it's Green Goblin who kills himself, so he feels empty that Green Goblin's dead. But would he not feel even worse or better knowing that Green Goblin killed himself? What happened um, to him wasn't by his hand. No. So even though he was dead, no matter what Peter did, because it he didn't do it, or he didn't get the vengeance he wanted to. Yeah, but he stopped himself anyway. But yeah, but that didn't matter though because he's dead anyway. So is it better or worse for him? Like, does he feel empty because he didn't kill him, or that he wasn't the one who killed him? Uh, I think it's just more of a case of he's dead, but so what? Yeah. When's still not here, it doesn't matter how he died. And Conway does do a really good job here where this isn't Spider-Man's fault. He doesn't he, he doesn't put him in a situation like we mentioned earlier on with the burglar in... The burglar. I still call him the burglar, <laughs> even though he isn't in the film. In the first Sam Raimi movie where he doesn't kill the guy, but he doesn't make an effort to save him either. Yeah. In this, this is completely out of Spider-Man's hands. He simply, the Spider-Sense warns him, and as we discussed earlier, he doesn't know where that danger is coming from or what danger, what form that danger takes. Hmm. He just reacts to his Spider-Sense, which is get the hell out of the way of whatever the danger is. Yeah. And then that glider pins the Green Goblin to the wall, carries him a good couple of foot, pins him to the wall, and then he drops down to the floor dead. So this isn't, you can't even argue a case here that Spider-Man could have prevented this. He couldn't. Yeah. Not unless he's got super fast reflexes like Superman. I mean, he's fast, but he's not that fast. Mm. So I think Conway did a really good job, though, of not making this his fault at all. So he doesn't feel any guilt about Norman being dead. And rightly so, he shouldn't feel guilty about that. Yeah. In my opinion. Uh, we talked earlier on about how we were going to talk about how Gwen actually died in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Because we had different opinions on this, don't we? Mm. You argued that she hit the floor... Before his web carter? No, it was she hit the floor. Be- did you or did you interpret it as the webbing carter, but the stretchiness of the webbing caused her to still hit the floor and snap? Because of her speed and how close she was to the floor, it was the stretchiness of the webbing that caught her, but because it stretched, she died mm. anyway. Whereas I read it as she hit the floor as the webbing carter. But again, we'd have to go and watch it again to yeah. make sure which of us were right. We'd have to like freeze. Yeah, it, yeah, we'd have to watch it a couple of times. But there was no snap there. No, there wasn't a snap. There was a quite a definite thud. Though. Yes, they but, very definitely confirmed years worth of. But arguing. that's what I'm arguing, though. If his webbing hadn't caught her, she still would have died. Though his webbing catching her didn't cause her to die. Do you know what I mean? Here, his webbing catching her snapped her neck. In Amazing yeah. Spider-Man 2, his webbing catching her didn't cause her to die. But it didn't not cause her. But it did to... not cause her. He just wasn't yeah. quick enough. Yeah. But he didn't he didn't snap her in Amazing Spider-Man 2, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So there's a subtle difference. But it, it was quite um, out there. The, the, there's not going to be any arguing over what caused it this time around, though. Which you know what I mean? Yeah, there's no ambiguity to it. It, it. it makes it very clear, but does that not kind of take away... No, because he still feels guilty about it. 
but I mean, there is no, there's no, there's no something for us, the audience, to go. He killed her, which was the debate that goes on with this. Yeah. Uh, there is a shadowy figure, copyright every comic ever, watching them. Uh, we learn in future issues that this is Harry, but how he managed to pull himself together long enough to go and do this is left vague. And then the final page is really the becoming of the Mary Jane character. No longer the party girl of previous issues, Mary Jane will emerge as a strong, viable character in her own right and will teach Peter how to love again. She deserves much better than she's been treated in recent years. The conclusion is every bit as gripping and yet has all the same flaws of part one. The biggest and most egregious is that Spider-Man thinks that when a man dies, even a man like Norman Osborn, it should mean something. Completely ignoring that that same man just killed his girlfriend for no reason and she died for nothing. So when a man dies, it should mean something, and when a woman dies, he gives a toss. Right, Spider? Snark aside, I really liked how Peter was characterised in this issue. We've never really seen a Peter Parker so consumed with anger and grief before that it overrides almost everything else in his psychological makeup. Gone is the sympathetic Peter who covered up the Goblin's ID to protect his friend. He's arrogant to the people in the crowd around Gwen, snarling that the papers were right about him being a menace, and he just really doesn't her anymore. He's dismissive of the cops, even the sensitive one. He's borderline unlikable, and yet the line, she's dead and Spider-Man killed her, is heartbreaking and truthful. His treatment of Harry is likewise appalling. You know what you said about the whole, when a man dies, it has to be for a reason. Yeah. Does he not mean that he is a believer that when a person dies there should be a reason for it and that yeah I was just being snarky yeah, okay. I was I was playing a joke about the f- men and women and so a woman dying don't matter does she not I was jo- I was being joking <laughs> well it means Peter's gonna go without tea today but... I was oh <laughs> I was making an equality joke you've just shot that down in flames you <laughs> sexist <laughs> The ending works because it has Spider-Man realise that just before he beats Norman to a pulp, he has to stop. Otherwise, he's just as bad as the person that he is going to kill. And ultimately, he's better than we are. The ending has a hoist by his own petard, ironic aspect. But it doesn't feel joyous or a big climax to such a, a big and important villain. To be fair, the Green Goblin had long outlived his usefulness, far more than Gwen, in my opinion, and in fact had become very repetitive. His last few stories had basically hinged on the same dynamic. Norman regains memory, goes after Spider-Man, loses memory again, repeat until bored. Even allowing for him uncovering Spider-Man's secret ID, I never really believed the Goblin was the ultimate Spider-Man villain. Even his death is small, intimate, and ultimately irrelevant. Gwen is still dead, and Peter still has to try and go on with his life, which leads us to the last page and the only appearance by Murray Jane in this issue. If any character benefited from Gwen's death, it was MJ. Gwen didn't benefit. We didn't learn anything about her in death, just as we didn't really in life. Compare her death to the death of Jean DeWolf, and it's hollow and meaningless in comparison. But MJ grew as a character from this point on. She stayed and supported Peter. His words, harsh though they were, had an element of truth to them. And from this point, Mary Jane really does start to develop and change. She helps Peter get over this as much as he can, and one would have hoped that at some point other writers would have got over it as well. Is it perfect? No. 
There's no real story here. It's almost too fast-paced. We learn nothing about Gwen and her death is throwaway. Norman's death is likewise a hollow moment in a nihilistic story. But life is like that. It hits us when we're down. Things don't make sense. There is no arc to a person's life, just a series of events that, if we're lucky, get to mean something. And Conway's story reflects that. And if it makes you hold your loved ones just a little bit closer tonight, then fiction has once again proven its worth. What did you think of it, Michael? I really like it. It's still at least one of, if not my all-time favourite Spider-Man story. Really? Is it your all-time favourite Spider-Man story because it's the first one you read? Well... Well, it's not the first one you read, is it? No, but I really... The first time I read Maximum Carnage years ago, I really liked it. (laughs) And reading it for the show... Luke Giaconetti still loves it. It didn't hold up at all. No, God, no. First time I read Civil War, I really liked it. Reading it for the show recently didn't hold up at all. This still held up and was even more of a strong and impact... Impactful. Impactful, yes. Yes, that's a word. It was even more of a strong story that had just as much resonance yeah and so I think that if you can read a story for all of your life and it still has the same amount or you know more of an impact then it's a good story Hmm. and I just because I'm weird like that I really like stories where the good guys don't win (laughs) yes I know that about you yeah it's the argument that a lot of times I've I've always said I, I I get emotionally involved in the characters and I get emotionally involved in the situations of the characters and I always think that's where ultimately that's where I think Spider-Man scored over other characters. Mm. You were as emotionally invested in the Peter Parker part of his life as you were in the Spider-Man part of his life. There's any number of issues of, of Batman, for instance, where you're just like, oh, get the Bruce Wayne crap out of the way, I want him to be Batman. Yeah. And there's any number of Superman stories where you're like, you just want him to be Superman. Mm. You don't really care about what's going on at the Daily Planet or Jimmy Olsen or any of that <laughs> stuff. I just don't really care about Jimmy Olsen. Well, that as well. But with the Spider-Man stuff, that's not me denigrating those two characters. Yeah. But the Spider-Man, Peter Parker stuff, there was no clear delineation in where one started and the other began. Spider-Man influenced Peter. He became more confident. He became more outgoing. But, but Peter Spider-Man Parker caused, influenced Spider-Man. Spider-Man caused problems in Peter. Yeah, yeah, and that the two... That's the maxim. The, how much he wins, he loses. He yeah. will make the right choice. He will do the right thing. But doing that right thing costs him something. Yeah. On a personal level. And it's the emotional impact of this story that makes it work. Even if, in and of itself... I still maintain it's not a particularly good story. It's an incredibly emotionally powerful issue. Yeah. And you can have that that schism. It It's well written. Mm. And the questions we've asked at the end of every one of these 70s shows, is it influential? God, yes. In lots of ways, some good, some bad. Women in refrigerators probably wouldn't exist without this story. But that's not this story's fault. Yeah. In the same way that constantly epping Frank Miller's Dark Knight isn't Frank Miller's fault. Mm. It's the fault of subsequent writers and artists and editors who can't let it go. And it seems to me there are people who just can't let Gwen go. Fortunately, Straczynski doing Sin's Past seems to have let people let it go. Well, there's a bit that, is it a problem that people haven't let it go yet? Because let's be honest, we wouldn't have reread it again or even be doing this show if 
people hadn't let it go. Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, but my argument with that is, like I said at the top of the show, Gwen has never been a presence in any external media stories of Spider-Man. They've always skipped straight off to Mary Jane. Yeah. Until the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon. Well, something about that that makes me like Gwen a lot more. I disagree with the idea that Gwen was boring and uninteresting. I liked Gwen more than Mary Jane. I like Gwen more than Mary Jane because, truthfully, I'm a bit bored of Mary Jane. I liked Mary Jane post-Gwen, when she did actually become a flesh-and-blood three-dimensional character instead of, hey, let's go and have fun! But what I like about the current stuff, or at least bits of the current stuff, is... Mary Jane is like Venom or Deadpool yeah, or any other character she just showed up. So that's yeah. why Gwen is still bright and shiny because she's hardly ever there. Because they killed her off before she could get boring. Yeah. But they killed her off because she was boring. So, you know. Uh, does it hold up? I think we've answered that question. Yeah. I think it undoubtedly holds up. And as we've said, the makers of Amazing Spider-Man 2 are hoping that it holds up as well. <laughs> Certainly at the box office. Uh, Michael and I both read this for the first time in the 1983 UK Spider-Man Annual, which has a, a Paul Neary front cover. To present it as a complete story, the strip was edited. Some of the edits make no sense. The splash page of issue 121 has been redrawn, I think by Paul Neary, for no reason at all that I can see. It's a slightly different angle. But all the pertinent information is here, although creator credits are omitted. All references to past stories are likewise cut out, although they don't remove the asterisks denoting the footnotes. Even though the footnotes have been... Yeah, they've just rewritten over them instead uh, of you, including issues. You can tell when they have rewritten it. Yeah, because the lettering never matches up. Yeah, what I do like is how you can you can see you colouring up. Yeah, I've, I've coloured in. You've given Norman green eyes. <laughs> yes. There's a panel later on where you've made Peter cry. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> there I, are times when your colouring in is quite decent. I do like the Norman Osborn green eyes. Do you like that? I do, do you like yeah. that I've coloured his eyes in green? Well, he's the green goblin. <laughs> yeah. How else would you know? I didn't say I was subtle when I was 11 years of age. It's, it's just the way of things. It's like a bank robber with, 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 with a, the stripy jumper and bag with a bag. And <laughs> a jumper that says thief. See, Norman Osborn goes around with a tag saying, Not the Green Goblin. Like the old Batman <laughs> TV show. Oh dear God, yeah. Um, also, the hardcover collection, The Death of the Stacys, that we just read in Peter's Eyes Are Blue, which bugs the crap out of me because he doesn't have blue eyes. The UK annual, they're actually the correct brown or hazel. Mm. So I did like that they were the right colour. Unless I've coloured them in. No, I've not coloured them in. They're, no. they're, they're actually that colour, yeah. Uh, the entire full page splash on page four, you know, exploding who the goblin is, is omitted. But the top two panels are transplanted to page five. To accommodate this, the middle row of panels from page five have been deleted. And this picks back up with the final panel of page five and some altered dialogue to accommodate the edits. Page 6 is dropped completely and the story progresses as normal from there until the end. There is then a two-page blurry bunch of pictures from the television show, which, you know, I, I would much rather have had them than the two pages of the actual story. <laughs> There's then a text story. Uh, I don't know who wrote it. I don't think it was a Grant Morrison or Alan Moore thing, you know, like in the, in the Superman comics. Were these text stories based within the TV show continuity? Uh, I think they were just generic Spider-Man stories. I don't think they had... Who's the artist? I think it's Paul Neary. It looks quite Frank Miller. I don't think it's Frank Miller. It may just be a pin Frank Miller. 
I don't know if they're in TV stereo continuity. I did read them. It would make sense because they're surrounded by TV shows. Yeah, there's, there's another couple of blurry pictures from the TV show, The Dragon's Challenge. Maybe that had just got a cinematic release at the point that this was, was released. It, it's entirely possible. Does he still think about what he's going to wear to the fancy dress? Yes, he's still thinking about that, yeah. There's then another text story, and then another blurry two-page TV stills. Why did he edit the story for this tripe? It just doesn't make sense. Issue 122 again has the splash page redrawn to remove the credits and one of the Goblin's lines of dialogue. Which is worse. Yeah, it's nowhere near as detailed or as good as the Kane meter original. The full page eulogy to Gwen on page 6 also falls under the editor's scissors. But it's the ending that's changed the most, presumably to accommodate all those magnificent stills from the TV show. <laughs> uh, the final panel is altered to cover up Spider-Man. And the caption changed to tell us that the man in the shadows, who we will learn is Harry in the original, is in fact Peter, and only time will heal this loss. The Mary Jane pages drop completely. Why? Why did they edit those pages to accommodate some crappy stills from the Well, I, I like it that it's the TV it's, show. It's own story, it's just one big yeah, story. It's, it's still its own story irrespective of that. There's no need to yeah. edit out the Murray Jane page. Oh, the page about who the Green Goblin is. I think to make it its own story, the Mary Jane bit does need to go. Do you? Yeah, because the uh, Mary Jane bit, like, like you said, that one page changed Mary Jane's character. Yeah, it was and the beginning of her metamorphosis into a more interesting character. Yeah, but that's kind of, to leave that in at the end, it would be to start a new story for it to just end. Right, okay, fair enough. So that's an edit you can get behind in that particular edition where it is being presented as a story in and yeah. of itself. That, and it's a really bum note ending as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose... At least with the Mary Jane bit, there's at least an ink There's a glimmer off. of hope. Yeah. Whereas that's just, oh, everyone's dead. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's... Was it... Yeah, that's, that's Spider-Man 3, but yeah. without the bit restarts dancing in the without street. Without emo dancing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all right. This story has now been altered after the fact by a number of retcons and revisions. Firstly, as of Tom DeFalco's run on Spider-Man in the mid-1980s, Mary Jane is aware that Peter is Spider-Man here. It kind of colours the ending a little bit, but personally I've never felt that that retcon worked anyway. I always thought it made much more sense for MJ to start figuring it out after Gwen's death, slowly, over time, culminating in Mary Jane making the final connection at Ned Leeds and Betty Brant's wedding, and that would in turn lead her to not accepting Peter's marriage proposal. But that's not what happens, so we either accept that retcon or we don't. But given how little Mary Jane appears in The Night Gwen Stacy Died, Goblin's Last Gasp, it makes little difference to the events depicted herein. The second major retcon is that Norman did not die here, despite all evidence of your own eyes. As revealed in Spider-Man issue 75 as the final and forever conclusion of the Clone Saga, Norman was revealed to have survived this, taken off to Europe to recover, you know, as you do, and then manipulated the events of Peter's life from afar for many, many years. It's not a retcon that really works, but it doesn't flat out change or contradict this story in and of itself. All of those events took place after the Goblin's Last Gasp, and that still played out as we saw it. Let's be honest, if Bruce Wayne can recover from a broken back, surely Norman Osborn can recover from being stabbed through. From being dead. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I can recover from being dead. It's no longer the obstacle. (laughs) Well, that's the excuse they use. Is it? Yeah. The Goblin (laughs) Serum 
heightened his healing factor <laughs> Heightened thing. his not-death ability. Yeah, heightened that not-death ability. A, a previous, a superpower he previously was unaware of okay. because he'd never died before. Of course. <laughs> he had to die to learn he had that power. It all makes perfect like, sense. You need to be stung by a bee to learn if you're going <laughs> yeah, to be allergic to them and die, yeah. <laughs> you have to have penicillin to learn that you're allergic to it. So yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Sadly... We can't say that the story was unaffected by the final retcon that affects this story, the infamous Sins Past. In this story we learn that Norman seduced Gwen and they slept together. I feel icky even (laughs) saying that. She then gave birth to twins, a boy and a girl, who, due to Norman's goblin formula, grew up real quick and returned for vengeance, because Peter was blamed for it for some complicated reason. To be fair, when taken as an out-of-context reading experience, Sin's past is not at all dreadful. <laughs> if you pretend it never happened. Yeah, as taken in a vacuum, it's, it's competently written. It's dramatic, and the art is okay, despite being overly reliant on photo reference. Robert De Niro is Mary Jane's teaching teacher. Her teaching teacher. Her, her acting teacher yeah, is Robert yeah. De Niro. And you're like, really? Robert <laughs> De Niro's got nothing better to do with his time? Unfortunately, though, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's a Spider-Man story, and therefore it's part of life's rich tapestry of Spider-Man stories. Peter was on the verge of proposing to Gwen in issue 99 of Amazing Spider-Man. Go and look it up, I'll wait for you. So this means that Gwen shagged Norman, got pregnant, had the twins in France, and then came back home while she was practically Peter's fiancée. Issue 99 also ends with Peter spending the night alone with Gwen in her apartment, which contradicts a major plot point of Sin's past, as does Spider-Man Blue, if you remember. You're not telling me that that didn't end with them spending the night together. Yeah. If you recall the final page. All of this would be fine, like I say, if it existed in a vacuum and it told its story and got on with itself. But, Sin's past commits the cardinal sin of the retcon, which is you cannot change what we, the audience, have already seen. You can show us stuff from before or after that, but what we saw is sacrosanct. This story breaks that twice. Firstly, the confrontation between Norman and Peter on the staircase never happened in the Sins Past version of events. Secondly, the dialogue is completely different. And thirdly, Mary Jane goes off to do something she doesn't do in the original text. This isn't showing us a scene from a new angle, or showing us before or after a scene we did see, where the villain turns around and goes, Ha ha! but this happened and you didn't know it this is rewriting another writer to make your own story work and not only is that cheating but it's grossly unprofessional but the most egregious aspect of Sin's past is how it affects the night Gwen Stacy died whilst it can be argued Norman didn't target Gwen him finding her at Peter's apartment now has a, a tarnished feel of killing two birds with one stone. The whole of Night Gwen Stacy died feels icky with the knowledge imparted by Sin's past. Writer Joe Straczynski, who really should know better, and Marvel, who definitely should have known better, managed to piss all over not only a classic story, but retroactively taint every single appearance of Gwen from around issue 90 to issue 121. 
Is it any wonder it's largely been ignored since it was published? What do you think of Sin's Past, Michael? I... Never read it. No, I... <laughs> I read all of Straczynski's stuff together. But I didn't have that problem with it than you did. Because... Whether, whether it was me growing up reading like Gwen Stacy died as its own story or whether it was because I just didn't take on board what it was saying, it didn't change what happened for me. It didn't taint the, the death of Gwen Stacy. It didn't make me think any less of it. But the two... I just think it's the two different stories. Well, that's... that's I'm arguing that it's not so much tainting the, Gwen St- the night Gwen Stacy died, hmm. even though it does a little bit, it taints every appearance of Gwen from when she supposedly got pregnant to when she dies. So you're now reading Amazing Spider-Man 99, where Peter goes to Gwen and practically says to her, because I reread this recently, yeah. he goes to her and practically says to her, I'm going to ask you a question. And how you answer that question may impact how we live the rest of our life. So she knows what he's going to ask her. Yeah. Right? And she says to him, I don't think you'll be unhappy with the answer. So basically what you've got there is you've got an issue where he's gone to her and said, we're going to get married. Yeah. And she's tacitly said yes to this question, even yeah. though he didn't flat out ask her. And you can't read that now and not think, but you're shagging Gwent Norman Osborne. But I can. I can't. I'm looking at it going, no. you. To be honest, reading the... Um, the day night when Stacey died when Norman kicks her out and he says Miss Stacey you and your friends are welcome to like you but you're shagging anyway aren't you yeah it's, it's stuff like that I mean you can pretend that this doesn't exist as much as you want but in the t- rich tapestry of Spider-Man's life it, it exists it's here I've got it in yeah, my yeah. hand but and so all those people who say well you can not like the new 52 as much as you want because all the old Superman stories are still there for you to enjoy you can't then turn around and say you can ignore Sin's past I can't it's here it exists. Well, the thing about that is, what that that what I just said was me, not the story. It was me telling the joke, and it was also Straczynski, not Jerry Conway. So yeah, yeah, so he's pissed over another writer's work. But it's not that because you can argue that everything that happened in the Amazing Spider-Man happened in Peter's life, mm-hmm. but you could also argue that is every writer's run on it not their own run on it no so I think I don't think so there is no such thing as an auteur in a franchise character like Spider-Man the character is more important than whoever is writing it I don't care that that writer is Joe Bloggs who's just walked straight off the street and landed a lucky assignment or if he's Captain Hollywood who's just sold a film to Clint Eastwood like Straczynski was at this point. I don't give a rat's ass what your pedigree is. You are servicing the overall good of the character. And it's Marvel's job to make sure you adhere to that. And that's the responsibility of the writer and Marvel themselves. Yes. But because it's the responsibility of the writer, if they change or the retcon or, you know, make an already established story worse for the readers that is all on the, the, the writer do you know it's on the editors as well because he pitched this story yeah. as it was Peter's kids right and Quisada said no well in that case it's on Quisada then yes because then he said well how about it be Normans and Quisada said yes what Quisada should have said is no no 
you are not doing that story. But then it's a dumb story. Is that not the the selling point of it? That it's Oh yeah. That? Yeah. So in that case then They've sold the character out to sell a few more issues. Yeah, so in that case then this should be seen as Straczynski's run it then because it was just for the money anyway. Oh well um, everybody's doing it for the money. It's all I don't care what value. job you do. When, You're doing it for the money. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But when a story is just for shock value, should you hold it, should you give it that much attention and credit? Yes, if it directly impacts on a... a say, all right, let's compare it to Tom DeFalco's retcon that Murray Jane has always known he's Spider-Man, right? right? That does not work in any stretch of the imagination. You can pick a random issue of Spider-Man that heavily features Murray Jane. Yeah. It's off the top of my head, the Betty Brown Ned Leeds marriage. Okay. There is a scene in that where Peter Parker has rushed off to change into Spider-Man to stop the bad guy du jour from ruining the marriage, right? Ruining right. the wedding. Right. And Murray Jane, in a crowded room, in front of everyone, says, Hey, where's Peter gone? As Spider-Man swings in. If she knew she's, he was Spider-Man, yeah. she's a bitch in that <laughs> scene. But that writer did not know that because that was a later retcon. Well, maybe she did know. She did say that. And many <laughs> years later when they were married, one night in bed, he says, Hey, remember when you yelled out with Peter <laughs> gone? You're a real bitch, you know. <laughs> but the, the counterpoint to that is that retcon don't work, but it doesn't retroactively tarnish another story. There's little instances like that where you can go, this clearly does not work. Yeah. But you either go, alright, fair enough, whatever. But this does. I I can't read those issues of Spider-Man now and not think of Norman Osborn's O-Face and the fact that... Gwen. ...keeps that headband on in bed. <laughs> and these are the things that are left burned in your brain now because of this piece of crap story. But say you never read since past. Oh, if I'd never read since past, it wouldn't matter, would it? But say you... Because this, has this ever been referenced again? Well, um... One more day. Was it referenced in One More Day? No, but does it still... Is, has it still happened? Yes, because he's not married anymore. So it only changed the marriage, didn't it? Well, the, the knock-on effect of that is... Abjad Di Matteis has said um, Craven's last hunt doesn't work if they're not married. Yeah. And he's right, it doesn't. But it would have had to for the Craven story they did. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's kind of... It's another one of them, isn't it? The New 52 Syndrome. Yeah, I mean, I'm reading the Clone Saga stuff now, and Peter and Mary Jane being married and having a kid is all very, oh, but at the back of your head you know, this all gets pissed on. Well, which is, is a shame. not the problem of having... A, a, a piece of like a character who's run for so long because Peter Parker has been around for so long is it not a hindrance as well as a benefit yes in which case what you should do as a writer and Dan Slott's done stuff in his run that I think oh like when he had Dr Octopus experiencing the memories of being without May and you're like no Ooh. no no I don't want to know was yeah that's icky I don't want to know that or the bit where he goes back to every time Peter ever got up close and personal to MJ. Yeah, that's icky, isn't it? And it's like, I don't but, think he needed to go there. No, but would it not be something that the character's done? Even though the writer didn't need to go there, would the character go there? Yeah, probably. But did we need to see it? 
could he not have alluded to it in some way that wasn't as in your face? Yeah. Well, even that, that doesn't tarnish earlier stories. I mean, One More Day does, or Omit, or whichever you want to call it. Yeah. But no, I, it's... I think it retroactively damages continuity and nothing good came of it. What good came of this story? It sold. Other than that, did it add anything to Gwen's character? Positive. Did it add anything positive to Gwen's <laughs> yeah, character? Yeah, it added stuff to it. Yes, did it add anything positive? We learned something new about her. We learned she keeps that bloody headband on in bed. That's what we learned. But did it add anything to her though, really? No, it didn't. So there's no need for it. Did it add anything to Norman as a character? No, he's a bastard, but we knew that anyway. Yeah. So that added nothing to it. Did it add anything to Mary Jane's character that she kept this a secret from Peter all those years? Oh, yeah, she knew, doesn't she? Yeah, she knew. Mary Jane knew about this all along. So he's not just tarnishing Gwen, he's tarnishing Mary Jane. What does that say about what Straczynski thinks of women? Well, he he, he tarnished Mary Jane anyway, really. Well, kind of. Anyway, there you go, that's that. That can go back in the box, never to be. So our show has also ended on a bum note now. No, 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 no. The night Gwen Stacy died, the Goblin's last gasp, is a classic of its kind and a textbook Bronze Age 70s comic book story. Being Marvel, it's more character-led than plot-led. There isn't much plot to speak of. But its impact on Marvel comics in general and Spider-Man comics in particular cannot be underestimated. It single-handedly changed the course of what could be done in a superhero comic book and change the rules of comics. It is a during, nihilistic, fatalistic piece of work that tells the audience that bad things happen to good people, often for no reason, and life is there to piss on you whenever it can. The antithesis of what a superhero comic, with its black and white good guy versus bad guy simplicity, is supposed to be about. But it also shows us that a comforting hand is where we least expect it. And no matter how dark it gets, tomorrow is only a sunrise away. Tomorrow. <laughs> Next time on an all new episode Black Exploitation and post apocalyptic sci fi as Luke Cage takes on Doctor Doom over the matter of $200. John Stewart basks in Green Lantern's light and Luther Manning is rebuilt better, stronger, faster. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously. 
New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. And we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. everybody. Andrew here just for a quick bit at the end. This next bit I just thought was incredibly charming. It's Andrew Garfield singing the Spider-Man theme. By the time this actually goes up, everyone's probably played it, but it was just so damned entertaining. We're going to include it here. Hope you enjoy it. Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever a spider can Spins a web any size Catches speed just like flies Hey there, here comes that Spider-Man Is he strong? Listen, but He's got radioactive blood Can he swing from a thread? Take a look Overhead, hey there, here goes that Spider Man. In the chill of the night, at the scene of the crime, like a stream of light, he arrives just in time. Andrew Garfield!